does have it all. All of our pre-owned vehicles are Hubler Q certified, which include a 128-point vehicle inspection, a free Carfax vehicle history report, and two warranties. A two-year, 100,000-mile powertrain warranty and a 30-day, 1,000-mile comprehensive warranty. Visit any of our 13 locations today or click drivehubler.com. And company. I'm going to be keeping you company for the next few hours. You are not going to believe the company. This company. You're going to bankrupt your mama's company. At least I have the radio to keep me company. On 93.5 and 107.5, The Fan. There is certainly plenty to discuss on this Thursday, including our road trip where we will go to Pittsburgh to preview the Colts and the Steelers. And we will talk plenty about what happened last night in Milwaukee between the Pacers and the Milwaukee Bucks. And what is it about game balls in this town? Whether you're discussing the amount of air in a football or basketball or who grabbed a commemorative ball. There is actually, I think, a silver lining in what took place last night. Again, I try to be the optimist, right? And last night... In Milwaukee, what we saw was, you know, there are a lot of times where teams have some sort of a thing where a guy goes for 64, sets a franchise record, not only the most player, the most points ever for a Milwaukee Buck player in a game, but the most points ever scored by the Indiana Pacers. I do get why Giannis would want that game ball, I guess. He wanted to give it to his mom, I think. But then he freaks out because he thinks that the Pacers took the game ball because Oscar Shibway got his first points in his career and the Pacers wanted to present it to him. Then we find out there's actually an alternate game ball and the actual ball that was used in the game, one or probably like five that's used. The Bucks, a staffer for the Bucks, did get it. Bottom line is this, Brendan King. There are plenty of teams in the NBA that that could have happened with. And you're coming off of the in-season tournament where we thought maybe it just was like a 10-day or a a two-week jolt to the relevancy of the Indiana Pacers and that that now was left in Vegas because what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. And now we find out, no, maybe the Pacers are, even though Milwaukee obviously handled them last night, maybe this is a growing rivalry within what was once the Central Division. It's still the division, but now it's just basically conferences. But as we have been dying for like relevancy things to talk about, especially as we mentioned all the time, pre-Christmas with the NBA, maybe that's what we saw last night was in fact for a team that has within the last few years won an NBA championship. This is a team they know has a rising star in Tyrese Halliburton that instead of just being like an annoying gnat that they were going to just kind of brush aside, they're counterpunching and coming back with and creating drama with a franchise that is it on Milwaukee's level in terms of its national relevance and competitive play night in and night out? Maybe not yet, but to me, it kind of shows the Pacers have arrived and that they are a team that is under the skin of those that have had more success of late. I have the exact same reflection when all that was going down last night, as stupid as it was, because eventually the video was put out, as you said, of the Bucks staffer, grabbing the basketball from the referee and then Giannis stuff and then Damian Lillard in the postgame presser. What's funny is Damian Lillard's postgame presser came at least, what, 20 minutes, 30 minutes after it was determined that 
the Buck Stafford took the basketball. But, Jake, you're right that sports are so much better with not only rivalries, but dumb little antics that come with rivalries. That's what gets people to watch a lot of times. And we are not saying that you have to be to a level of a Ron Artest or a level of Roger Clemens throwing a bat at Mike Piazza. You know, that's that's its own separate entity. Or Pedro Martinez throwing down Don Zimmer, right? It doesn't have to be like that. But rivalries are supposed to be fun where business is handled on the court. And as much as the Pacers struggled at times last night, I mean, that end of the first half of Buddy Heald hitting that three, that was tremendous. And again, it felt like a rivalry game as it should be. And the other side of it that I want to focus a lot on today as well, because the situation that happened last night with Milwaukee, the game ball situation, those are situations that are big stories right now, but over time obviously fade. And then you have greatness. And you have greatness in terms of players that have an impact on a franchise and the city and the game of basketball who their jersey hangs in the rafters. They are in the Hall of Fame. They are forever enshrined. And I'm talking about George McGinnis. Who George McGinnis, of course, the Mr. Basketball out of Indianapolis, Washington High School in 1969, went on to Indiana University where in only one year for the Hoosiers, had the highest single-season scoring average in Indiana basketball history. He is the only Indiana player to average 30 points per game. at 29.99 is what it technically was. Before going on to a career in the ABA where he was an ABA Most Valuable Player, he went on to the Philadelphia 76ers where he played in the NBA Finals. And actually during halftime of one of those games, there was a dunk contest, the first in NBA history. And a man who was in that dunk contest and won it and was a teammate of George McGinnis, and I think he would agree with me in saying a brother, for lack of better term, to George McGinnis, Darnell Hillman joins us as George McGinnis, we now know, passed away after a couple of days from a medical incident that happened at home. But George McGinnis, the team, the Pacers officially announcing today, passing away, and Darnell Hillman is taking time today to reflect on one of the all-time greats, not only as a basketball player, but an ambassador for the city of Indianapolis. Darnell joins us now. Darnell, uh, first, I want to thank you sincerely for your time on what I know is a difficult day. So let me begin by asking, how is Darnell Hillman doing today? Um, I'm holding holding my own, doing the best I can. Um, you know, pretty much... Uh, I'm more concerned about some of the other players wanting to make sure everybody got the word. Some of our former teammates that are no longer here in town, but around the country. I've been reaching out to them and keeping them involved. So I'm doing okay. You guys were in those days, the ABA Pacers. I I feel like Darnell, it was a different era admittedly I was you know very young during that time but I certainly know from the stories of Robin Miller and the Benners and you know just growing up in this town the connection that you had with the city itself can you kind of take me through when you were a player playing for the Pacers in those days of you know going to Nettos or being kind of men about town what it meant to have a guy like George McGinnis and what Indianapolis meant to him in terms of maybe being the conduit towards connecting a lot of you to the people of Indianapolis and what it meant for him to be playing and starring in his home city. Well, I think, uh, 
I think that's a big tribute to both sides, the community being able to have and being able to see George, not just through his high school years, collegiate years, but also as a pacer. And then for George to play in front of your hometown, I mean, what what more could you ask, ask for every night that you go out and you know you've got the entire community, the entire arena, and sometimes the entire state? Because back then, the Pacers were listened to statewide. So uh, it wasn't uncommon to, to get comments from kids saying, you know, um, my mom caught me. I was listening to the radio last night, so on a school night, and I got all the stats and this and that. And we were, um, yeah, we were kind of ambassadors for the game uh, here in the state. But uh, more importantly, I think um, we were proud and very honored to be recognized like that. And we sh- we tried to show that in our unity. Um, we weren't just basketball players and teammates, but we were more like family. George McGinnis was, of course, signed to the Indiana Pacers in the ABA after his lone year at Indiana University. He was drafted in the 1973 draft in the second round by the Philadelphia 76ers, would later go and play for Philly. But from 1971 to 1975, he was a Pacer. He was the MVP of the ABA. Darnell Hillman was one of his Pacer teammates and kind enough to join us today. Darnell, what kind of teammate was George McGinnis? Uh, a kindred spirit, a very kind individual, a tremendous player to have and call as a teammate. George would give you the shirt off of his back. Um you really enjoyed his friendship once you got to know him and he gets to know you um, as a ball player, especially coming around uh, playoff time. You could just see him turn the volume up and watch him really go. And we all had a, you know, being on the, the Pacers at that time, George and I came to, came with the Pacers together as rookies. And... When I arrived here, the attention that I saw all of the media giving him, it's like I had to be aware that, well, you know, he's hometown. He's been Mr. Basketball, and he's been watched here all of his life. I had to find some other kind of way to be able to play on the court with him. And one of the things I do remember as a rookie, George and I both shot the ball with one hand. And Slick called us in one day after a ball game. We didn't shoot the ball very well. And he said, the basketball is shot with both hands, gentlemen. Put both hands on the basketball. So the next game out, I'm shooting with both hands on the ball. George tried several times, and he just could not. That that left hand would not sit well on the ball. So he went back to the one hand. And after the ball game, he went in and spoke to Slick about it and they were okay. <laughs> Look what turned out from it. So. There, Darnell, is it safe to say that George McGinnis is probably one of like five players that actually could have just said to Slick Leonard, I'm going to just keep doing it my way? No, he wasn't that kind of individual, you know. It was about team. Um, but he Well, I mean, just in terms of the way he shot the ball, right? I mean, if it ain't broke, yeah, don't fix yeah. it, right? Correct. Uh, at this point, is really difficult to change your shooting style habit. So, uh, yeah, he went back to doing what he could do the best he could and was very tremendous at it. Um, one of the things about Georgia, uh, I don't think a lot of people remember, but George came into the league a very large individual. He was about 275. 
Slick made him lose 40 pounds. And when he dropped that 40 pounds, he was as quick as any guards that we had on the team, as strong as any big players that we had on the team, could handle the ball and do it all. And it'd be a great night to watch him when he was really on. You'd just uh, be amazed that he was our LeBron James back then. They talk about LeBron James and how big and structured he was. George was the atlas of the ABA back then. He just had the physique and all of the attributes that you'd want in an athlete. And, Darnell, my understanding is, you know, when you were coming in, Darnell Hillman, former teammate of George McGinnis, is our guest here on the program. When you entered the league with George, and so as you mentioned, you know, you're a young guy that's also trying to kind of earn your keep within the ABA and play for the Pacers. Um, George was already known, at least in this area, for his superlative athletic skill. And my understanding is that you used to challenge him to, like, foot races and, like, 100-meter dash races all the time just to show that Darnell Hillman was as good an athlete. Now, is that fact or fiction? Oh, uh, no, I never challenged him. Um, one of the things we did back then for training camp, Slick never let us in the gym. Our first two weeks, we were outside. Uh, running the mile, 100-yard dash, and doing the stairs. So our rookie year, Slick purposely matched both of us together (laughs) just to see. And um, we ran 10-4. And Slick's eye raised up when you have two guys this big who could run the 100 that quickly um i just started smiling inside and we became uh george and i became a part of a a nucleus that was already established here that had won a championship we became a part of the magnificent seven and we went on to win back-to-back championships did that bond that bond remains to this day i know that george physically speaking is not with us anymore darnell but i think that for fans as well as just for people in general, there's there's a lesson to be learned about two guys that come in, and even though you're on the same team, there's an element of competitiveness that takes place. But I wanted you to kind of elaborate on the, the bond that was built between not only that team, but for you and George as well. Because, you know, I know from other people and just from seeing it from afar that the two of you did have a brotherhood that remained tight, obviously, until the very end, and and in this case now, obviously in spirit. But can you just elaborate for our listeners what it was about George that made you be embraced by him and what it was about George that made you want to embrace him as well? Well, as I said earlier, he was a, a very kind individual and kindred spirit. Um, one of the things that happened between George and I as rookies, we opened up an appliance store here in town was on 38th and Keystone. Uh, Did that for a year together. And then George's mom and my mom, I moved my mom out from California out here, and George's mom and my mom became good friends. And then my sister and George's sister became friends. So they would meet together and go and do their things. And George and I played basketball, and we were traveling around. The other thing that um, I was very – impressed with was uh, after basketball that Indiana Pacers that were here in town from the ABA 
we are still a family. We still get together. We have dinner together or we get over to someone's house and have a barbecue or something. And this has gone on since we came into the league. So we've always been very close and very important for one another. And as uh, I work for the Pacers and my role uh, when whenever George was coming in to make an appearance for us, I made sure that we rolled the red carpet out for him. You know, I picked him up in the golf cart, make sure he got to wherever he needed to be, minimal sight as possible. He was comfortable. He did a lot of things for us. And then when the event would be over, I'd get him out as smoothly as possible. And he was very appreciative of that and very thankful. How recently, Darnell, had you gone out like socially with him? I know that obviously George had had some problems with his back. You know, his mobility was becoming limited as he became, you know, older and, and his body was starting to defy him a little bit. But, you know, I know people tell me he loved working man's friend. He would go there. You know, how often did you still talk to or interact with him? Uh, probably a minimum of three or four times a month. Uh, the last time George and I got together, I believe we went out to a restaurant and had dinner. But uh, I frequently visit George at home quite often. I at least try to see him maybe two or three times a month. And we'd sit around for hours on his back porch or in the house just talking about the, the good old days. And one of the things uh, about him, he was very proud. He was very concerned about his physical appearance as time went on. And I was trying to get George to understand that, man, I, yes. We miss the way you used to look, but these folks remember what you've done for them, and they will overlook that. Just expose yourself to the community because the Indiana Pacers are well-loved in this community. Darnell, finally, George McGinnis. Darnell Hillman is our guest. You know, George McGinnis, before you knew him, I assume, that you didn't know him like right after high school. You probably knew of him because he was that big a player. But, you know, his father passed shortly after he had finished his career, actually shortly, I think a week after he had the 54.31 rebound, I think that's what it was, game number two in the Indiana-Kentucky All-Star game. His father was tragically killed in a construction accident. And he had mentioned once in an interview that his father had told him how proud he was of him. And I think that that, you know, for any player, that would be of significance, especially when his father passed. But to lose his dad at a young age, and the kindness that he had for people, and in particular young people. I remember as a kid in Indianapolis, George McGinnis would come and speak to schools and speak to kids about you know working hard and, and learning goals and those kinds of things. Losing his father at that age, how much do you think that that kind of shaped the way he was, the generosity that he, that he had, and the teammate that he was that you were able to be with? Well, I think he, uh, he had a lot of role models to uh, – really improved that image in which you're speaking of, you know, starting with our team. And we had uh, Freddie Lewis, Mel Daniels, Roger Brown, Bob Nedelecki, all strong alpha males. And with our coach, Bobby Slick Leonard, George had a lot of role models to take, you know, a little bit from each and everybody and really showed who he was and developed in becoming the kind of individual that he was because he was very, very giving. He looked out for any and everybody. And if George liked you, there's no end to just how 
far he could express that. He'd give you, like I said before, he'd give you the shirt off of his back. And the media will never be able to scratch the surface of the number of people that George has touched with great stories of his kindness and the things that he's done for many, many folks, not just here in the city, but for statewide and probably some far around the country in different places that he's played. He's just that kind of guy, tremendous athlete. And uh, this is going to be a big loss. Hey, Darnell, just a quick one from me. Just in today's age of NIL and transfer portal, basketball and sports in general are completely different. But with McGinnis's story of being a hometown guy, going to Indiana, starting his career with the Pacers, of course he went elsewhere in the middle of it, but coming back to just how unique of a story is that when you consider today's age of kind of the ever-changing world of basketball? I'll bet you couldn't count that number of stories on one hand. Uh, going back to whenever basketball began, a very unique, uh, very special, and a different journey than most athletes take. And certainly, George fit those shoes and did very well. Um, we, as Indiana Pacers, that have called him a teammate, were very proud to have been by his side and have played with him. And the last thing that I look at this overall is. George is in the Hall of Fame. Play with him. Play with Mel Daniels, who's in the Hall of Fame. Roger Brown, who's in the Hall of Fame. And Bobby Flick Leonard, who's also in the Hall of Fame. This is the last contact I have with my Hall of Famers until I join them, whenever that might be. So, going to be missed. And it's been an honor to have played with him and all of the other guys we played with because we were just not playing basketball, but we became family. And we stay in touch right now till today. I've been in touch with Meadow and Billy Keller and all of the guys that uh, played on those championship teams. And it's a, just been a tremendous loss for us. But we know he's in a – we probably all assume that um, he's there meeting Mel and uh, Roger and Slicks on the sideline, tell him, get down there on the baseline, guys, we're going to do some suicide <laughs> Well, Darnell, listen, I know it's a family loss for you. Um, I have a great respect and appreciation for your ability to continue the relationship that you did with the Pacers, but also to be able to be that link for those of us that, that, you know, for for younger people listening that didn't see George McGinnis, for you to carry on that legacy, to to carry on the message of how great he was and how great those teams are, um, you've done him proud. You've done Mel proud, you've done Slick proud, and you've done George McGinnis proud now, and I know you'll continue to do so. But my condolences to you on what I know is a difficult time, but I appreciate uh, very much so your heartfelt message today about George McGinnis, and I appreciate it very much. I thank you, Lynn, for reaching out. It's been a pleasure. All right, Darnell Hillman, uh, former Indiana Pacer and teammate of George McGinnis. As George McGinnis, one of the all-time greats, uh, passes away after a few days in the hospital. And, Brendan, you had mentioned, and it's a very good point, about you know the, the Indiana connection with George McGinnis and just the fact that you know high school, college, professional, all in the city in which he grew up. George McGinnis actually was born in Alabama, and when he was a youngster, I believe he was five or six years old, uh, his father, Bernie McGinnis, was traveling, as was often the case, for African-Americans in that era, was traveling to the Chicago area to see about getting a job 
in Chicago in like the construction or or labor fields to kind of get out of, you know, his mother, George McGinnis, has, has mentioned that he had memory of seeing, you know, his mother like in like cotton areas and, and working, you know, in the South in that time when he was uh, very little. And his father wanted a better opportunity for George and for his sister Bonnie. So he he sought out that opportunity in your hometown of Chicago. And on the way to Chicago, George McGinnis's father stopped to stay with family in Indianapolis just to kind of break up the drive between Alabama and Chicago. And it was during that time before he got up in the morning to continue the drive to Chicago that the, I believe it was the husband of his sister. So his brother-in-law said, well, actually, you know, there's a, a construction site where uh, they're hiring some guys here in Indianapolis. And so his father went and interviewed there as opposed to continuing to drive to Chicago, got a job and moved George, his sister and his mother to the near West side of Indianapolis, where he went to Washington high school. He was probably the most dominant high school player. Certainly to that time, Oscar Robertson would be one of them, but in terms of physical domination, McGinnis along with Steve Downing, Wayne Pack was another player on that team that was very, very good. Um, Jim Arnold, you know, they had a really good team, Washington. They went 31-0. They were the first undefeated team since Attucks and just the second, I believe, from well, certainly the second from Indianapolis to run undefeated and win the state championship. And then, as you know, as we mentioned, he stayed at Indiana and then with the Pacers. How that trajectory could have changed. He could have been at, let's say, DePaul or Illinois and then signed to the Bulls, perhaps, with Jerry Sloan and that group. You know, who knows what could have happened and the trajectory. That's the way that, that things are altered in the way they turn out. But it turned out to be a blessing for the city of Indianapolis because McGinnis was not only a great player, but a true great gentleman and ambassador for Indianapolis Washington High School, Indiana University, and the Pacers organization. And then when he played for the Philadelphia 76ers, went to the finals, played with Julius Irving, um, was a first-team All-NBA performer and a great player that accentuated and showed people beyond Indianapolis then what Indianapolis had to offer because he was a great NBA player that was doing that in Philadelphia as a product of Indianapolis. We'll continue reflecting upon talking about George McGinnis over the course of the show today, but we do have other sports as well to talk about. We'll get into what happened last night with the Pacers and the Bucks, but the Colts getting set for the Pittsburgh Steelers. Matt Taylor, voice of the Colts, joins us on the other side. It is a Thursday edition of Query and Company, and you're listening to it here on 93.5-1075 The Fan. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. Okay, we're back here on a Thursday. Jay Corey along with Brendan King. Eddie Garrison, who now I don't understand. This confuses me, Brendan. Eddie said he's off today, but he's like the ghost of Christmas past. He just keeps walking past the studio. Can't stay away. That's the magnetism that we have, right? Yeah, I mean. Uh, Carl he- Showbiz is in running the board for us right now. Again, thanks to Darnell Hillman uh, for his reflections on George McGinnis. Uh, Jake, very well said on George. Growing up in St. Louis, I despised the Pacers because I was a fan of the spirit of St. Louis. George Mellon, the boys... 
so often were beating us. Weird how things change, and I wind up in Indy for 20 years now and a Pacers fan. And if you're a Pacers fan right now, obviously that means that you were watching last night with the Milwaukee Bucks. We will get into that discussion of everything that took place with Giannis, the the scandal over the game. But to be honest with you, I thought the bigger thing was just the fact of, you know, it got a little bit chippy and it got a little bit physical between the Pacers and the Bucks. And I think a lot of that was, you know, the Bucks didn't forget coming in here and or, or actually in Vegas, coming into the, the semifinals of the in-season tournament, getting beat by the Pacers, all of the attention to the Pacers and Tyrese Halliburton. It, it's actually, people here should be excited by it. Instead of being, and I get it, I get being PO'd at the Bucks. I get being upset with Giannis, I get being offended by all of it. But the other side of it is you could look at it and say, you know what? Let's go. Like, we're flattered by it. Here we are in December. The Pacers are the talk of the NBA. People are talking about Tyrese Halliburton. People are talking about the, the elbow. People are talking about the basketball. You know, Chad Buchanan, now this part's ugly, and you hope it was inadvertent, but Chad Buchanan getting elbowed in the ribs during the whole scuffle that took place in the hallway afterwards. You know, there was a lot. there's a lot going on with that that we will break down over the course of the show today. But before we do that, it is time to go to West 56th Street and talk to Matt Taylor. What's happening on West 56th, presented by Shelby Materials, the concrete and aggregate experts. We'll find out in 30 seconds. Do you want to work for a company who has your back? You can count on Shelby Materials. Shelby Materials has 10 ready-mix locations in central Indiana and is looking for Class B CDL drivers. Highlights include being home every night and every other weekend off during peak season. Shelby Materials stands behind its work, products, and people. We support our employees with competitive wages and benefits, including 401K, PTO, paid holidays, HSA, and a sign-on bonus. Learn more about your next opportunity by visiting shelbymaterials.com. Now, what's happening on West 56th? Brought to you by Shelby Materials, the concrete and aggregate experts. So Matt Taylor, the voice of the Colts, joining us courtesy, if you hadn't figured it out there, of Shelby Materials. Uh, Matt, we'll begin with this, the injury report, I guess. Um, we have talked about the fact that Shane St- so Matt Taylor, the voice of the Colts, joining us courtesy, if you hadn't figured it out there, of Shelby Materials. Uh, Matt, we'll begin with this, the injury report, I guess. Um, we have talked about the fact that Shane Steichen goes under an approach, which is pretty common, I think, in today's NFL, and that is later in the year, a lot of times Wednesday practices are more walkthrough than they are full pad contact practices. Uh, what? How were things yesterday in that regard? Which did they do, I guess? And... Uh, who is not ready to practice today that we've been keeping an eye on? Okay. Did I offend Matt with the question, you think, right now? Perhaps. Okay, we will uh, <laughs> We'll see. Brennan's going to run around here and see if we can get rid of There we go. There we go. We'll try Matt Taylor back in just a second here. Um, but... One of the questions that I was just asking, Brendan, we do know this, right? No DeForest Buckner, correct? For practice today? No DeForest Buckner and still no Braden Smith or Jonathan Taylor. I think Smith is the one that, you know, Taylor, with with Taylor, you obviously have the benefit of the fact that now against Cincinnati, they could, they just couldn't get Zach Moss going. But at least you know you have Zach Moss there. Uh, you know, Braden Smith's one that I think one week to the next, you keep thinking like maybe this is the week that, that, that they get him back, but. Again, that one's nagging as well. 
Um, but Taylor, you had mentioned yesterday we were right on the precipice of when he could be coming back, but we'll ask Matt Taylor now uh, about Jonathan Taylor. So, Matt, I was just asking, first off, if you could give us an update. We now know DeForest Buckner not practicing today. Jonathan Taylor, Braden Smith also out as well. Others that were missing would be who? Uh, as of right now, those are the big ones. Uh, yeah, we'll find out, um, you know, definitively here in a couple hours. Uh, actually, probably in an hour when Shane Steichen meets with the uh, uh, media coming up after practice. And, and like you said, uh, I don't know how much you heard. I don't know if I was over the air or not. But, you know, everything this week is kind of bumped up a day, obviously, because you're playing on Saturday instead of, of Sunday. So, yeah, you're right. Tuesday was kind of the normal Wednesday walkthrough traditionally that they've grown accustomed to here late in the week or late in the season um so yesterday was kind of the first full day of practice and then today is kind of like a friday practice so we'll find out here in a couple minutes you know who's in who's out who's questionable kind of those statuses but yeah those are the big ones to me it's it's right tackle considering you know what you got coming off the edge potentially um you know from the steelers with tj watt who has cleared the concussion protocol uh, after being put in it on on Saturday, which is really kind of interesting, which is probably a you know conversation um, outside of this one, but uh, it looks like he's going to play. And then, you know, what do the Steelers do if Alex Highsmith can't play? But if both of those guys are healthy and active, man, that's a really tall order for the Colts and their tackles. Down one of their tackles and uh, Braden Smith and probably Blake Freeland getting his eighth start of the season. Hey, Matt, it's Brendan with. DeForest Buckner not practicing, obviously, like you said, still got to find out what's going to happen come Saturday. But, you know, it's kind of a musical chairs almost feel that once Stewart comes back in, Buckner not practicing today. Just your reflection from both of them playing together in Cincinnati and what the inside of that D-line looked like. Yeah, I thought it looked better. And I, I, I would still think, you know, DeForest Buckner is in one of those, he's in a rare class or you put him in a, a bucket where, you know, you still feel good about him playing and the production you would get out of him potentially if he can't practice all week. You know, you don't say that about a lot of guys, but, you know, he's just that good. And he's only missed one game since uh, being picked up by the Colts in 2020. And that one game was because of COVID. Um, so it really wasn't uh, an injury or anything like that. So, you know, he's really been you know, an Iron Man, really durable. So just because he doesn't practice today doesn't completely rule him out for for Saturday, in my opinion. We'll find out. But I thought the running game was better um, on Sunday. Now, the biggest thing is, I mean, you're still giving up over 100 yards in, in seven straight games. But it was noticeable, um, the difference inside. Now, the problem is Cincinnati still got theirs by breaking them outside. You know, Mixon had some – um, nice perimeter runs with the bounce, and then obviously they got their big plays through the screen, which is kind of a byproduct of the Colts being so good in their pass rush the last couple of weeks, kind of using that against them in that game with what was like 124 yards on, on screen passes on, on three plays. That was a, a huge backbreaker in that game for the Colts um, down there in Cincinnati last Sunday. So um, I thought it was better, but, you know, Grover Stewart talked in the locker room this week. He admitted that, you know, he's still kind of kind of rusty a little bit. You know, game shape and conditioning was 
um, not there like it had been the first six, seven weeks of the season before his six-game suspension. So that's going to take a little bit more acclimation, maybe another week or two before he's kind of like that finely tuned version of Grover Stewart before he had to sit out all of those games. But, um, yeah, there's no doubt. I mean, the, the heartbeat of that defense is up front between those two outstanding defensive tackles. That's really big in this game on Saturday because, you know, say what you want about the Steelers' offense, and I know it's sluggish. They're not putting up a whole points or a whole bunch of points per game, right around 16 per. Um, but they're running the heck out of the football. I mean, they they've got over 900 rushing yards in the last six games, which leads the NFL in that time period. So they have two really good backs right now, and Harris and Jalen Warren. Both guys are over 800 scrimmage yards for the season. So you're right, not having Buckner out there potentially. That's that's something to watch for Saturday and the Colts' ability to slow down the Steelers and take away their ability to control the game. Matt, you ever flown on Southwest Airlines? Indeed. So, you know, when you fly on Southwest, if you don't buy that early bird dealio, right, you stand there and it's like, you know, you're like B-56 and then you're looking at the person next to you and they're B-55 and you're like, do I, you know, B-57 just jumped in front of both of us. Do I say something? It gets very awkward, right? But it gets congested as you're waiting to board the plane. Yeah, they're okay? like the general admission. They're like the uh, the lawn section at Ruoff. You know, <laughs> That's just, right. just show up and right. hope for the best. So, so here's here's my point to that. The, the AFC wildcard standings right now are kind of like the B borders on Southwest Airlines, right? Like like there's this log jam, and you're kind of trying to figure it all out. Is there a danger for the Colts in starting to wonder what everybody else is doing? they got a great opportunity here with Pittsburgh because it's another team that's right in that same vat. But are the Colts, which way are they handling it? Are they looking at it saying, look, here's what we've got to do and here's what other teams have to do in, in preaching the importance of each game, or – do you lock out all the scoreboard watching if you are internally within the building? Well, I, I think it's kind of healthy to do both and to have a good perspective on things. I mean, most guys, they know what time it is, right? They they know where they're at in the season. There's three games to go after this Saturday. So the margin for error, if you don't get this game against one of those seven and six teams, um, it, it's incredibly small. And you know, all the analytics analytics websites have it going from like a if you win, you're up to like 60, 65 percent of uh, a chance of making the playoffs. And if you lose, you're like under 20 percent of making the playoffs just with this one game because of what this one game means, because it's against the Steelers, who are also seven and six. Um, it's an AFC game, and it's also that, that crucial head-to-head tiebreaker, which is inevitably, I think, going to come into play You know, the, the first weekend of, of January once we get into um, you know, the week 18 or week 17 trying to hash all this out. So there's no doubt the guys kind of balance the, the urgency coming off a loss last week and knowing how important this game is, but not letting it kind of cripple them and not let it – kind of have that that paralysis by analysis method where if you think too much and put uh, too much pressure on yourself you're not going to be able to go play fast and perform and and just play at a high level in such a pivotal game so I think guys are really kind of embracing this situation I was talking with Mo Alley Cox in the locker room just yesterday actually and he had really good perspective I mean he's been on this team or with the, the franchise since what 2017 so he has seen the highs, the lows. He's seen the drama with coaches and Andrew Luck retiring 10 days before the season. I mean, he's, he's pretty much seen it all. And, you know, he had really good, uh, you know, a good reflection yesterday. It's like, you know, this time last year, we played a Saturday game this same week, week 15 in the middle of December. We played, you know, in Minnesota. 
And we all remember what happened in that game where you gave up the, the biggest lead in the history of the you know, NFL and, and couldn't win that game. And the Colts were headed for a, you know, a terrible finish to end the year at 4-12-1. That was just one year ago. And now look at them here. They're, right, they're 7-6, and six, and they got everything in front of them and a chance to you know, make the playoffs and make some noise with a backup quarterback for a majority of the season. So that's how quickly things change in the NFL. And he also noted that hey, just because you're 7-6 and six now and – you know, I think it's pretty much luck right now, considering the log jam the Colts are in at seven and six with six other teams that have the same record. For them to have the seven and final playoff spot going into this game is kind of a semantics thing with the tiebreakers and the AFC stuff, right? You know, with, with when you factor in, you know, who who beat who and all that stuff. The Colts are pretty lucky to be in the position that they're in. But again, Mo Ali Cox noted that this is all going to change at the end of the week. And the only way we can preserve one of our playoff spot is, uh, spots is by winning. And so that's what they have to do to, to remain you know, solely focused, singularly, singularly focused on this game, knowing just the magnitude of these last three, but this one holding more weight than, than, the, than the others. Matt, speaking of Mo Cox, Matt Taylor, the voice of the Colts, is our guest. Uh, another guy within his position room, Will Mallory. I was impressed with what he is able to do. It seems like They've and you tell me if I'm off base here, but my observation has been that at the tight end position, the Colts that is one area that they're still kind of rotating guys through to see who really wants to take the reins, and maybe some of that is um, circumstantial. You know, I mean, it, sometimes you need a receiving tight end, sometimes you just need a big blocker. Mm-hmm. But Will Mallory, to me, seems to be a guy that if they want to get in particular for Anthony Richardson a tight end that can do some stretch reception type plays that he is one they're taking a hard look at your thoughts. No, absolutely. I mean, he's really coming on. I mean, the last four games, he's got 10 catches for 86 yards and he had five for 46 against Cincinnati last week. And you're right. I mean, once Anthony Richardson comes back, I have a, I have a, you know, an interesting, um, you know, suspicion that just like you, that, you know, those two guys are going to have a high degree of synergy and chemistry together. Um, he's just an unbelievable athlete, unbelievable target there at, at Miami. I mean, his last couple of years in college, he had over 800 receiving yards and, you know, seven touchdowns and just a great athlete. Like I said, I mean, ran the 40 yard dash and at 4.5. And, um, you know, he's a guy that the Colts targeted in the draft to, you know, spread the field and, and also also stretch it down the field as well. So, you know, this is a guy that I think the Colts are going to continue to rely on, you know, these last four games. And, you know, obviously Gardner Minshew doesn't have a hard time throwing him the football into some, you know, obviously some some you know, crunch time uh, situations, but more so, you know, some tight windows with guys draped all over him. So that's going to be something that I'm going to keep an eye on the rest of the season is Will Mallory's production within this offense. Because for a while there at the beginning of the season, you're right, it was kind of a fluctuation between, you know, Granson and Ogletree and Mallory to see which guys are going to be up and which guys are going to be active and, you know, playing time and things like that. Now basically all of them are a go and they all have different roles and kind of, you know, they're kind of situational tight ends. But I think between the 20s, and when you need yards to get yourself in a scoring threat, that's where Will Mallory has really kind of cemented a nice little role for this team within this offense. Matt, did the running game and its inability to get uncorked against Cincinnati, um, which is unusual. I mean, Zach Boss has obviously been a really good player, in particular the first you know half of the season. Was that as much about 
A, offensive line lack of health for the Colts. B, wrong scheme. Or C, Cincinnati defensively. I think it was Cincinnati knowing that, hey, for us to be in a bad position on defense, it's we can't let this ground game get going from the Colts. Despite the fact that they didn't have Jonathan Taylor, we know that Zach Moss is a very capable back, and I think that's that's shortchanging him. But I think everybody knows what I mean by that. But, you know, their linebackers very much played downhill, close to the line of scrimmage. They were stacking the box. I think in the last four games – the Colts have faced like a 37% uh, stack box rate, which I know is very, very analytical. But um, it just goes to show you that right now teams are are selling out to stop the run, and they're making the Colts essentially kind of play in a, you know, a 15 to 20 yard field where you got a lot of crossing patterns. There's not a lot of stretching down the field. That's why it was so, it was so fun honestly, to see the Colts stretch the field two weeks ago against Tennessee. That first drive of the game, they hit that chunk play, that 36-yard touchdown pass to Alec Pierce, and they came back to a similar play. That right, They hit, they hit Pierce on the deep um, post on the touchdown. Then they had the deep uh, go route in overtime to set up the game-winning touchdown for Michael Pittman Jr. Those plays, for whatever reason, just weren't part of that offense in Cincinnati. So I think teams now, it's a copycat league, and Cincinnati knew that we're going to make Gardner Minshew uh, beat us with the quick rhythm, timing throws. But if you've got a lot of people in the, uh, you know, at the line of scrimmage and you get that pass rush, um, there's not a lot of avenues for him to, to work with the football. And that certainly played out that way, and the Colts have to remedy that in this game. Uh, I just somehow, some way, you've got to find some more shots, some more chunk plays, not only to, to soften up the defense, that's playing so quickly or so uh, close, I should say, to the line of scrimmage. But you also just have to help yourself score. you got to help yourself be more efficient on offense. The Colts can't go, you know, 10, 11, 12 play scoring drives to get in a touchdown. There's just, there's just too much that can go wrong, and these other defenses are just too good, right? You get a false start penalty or a holding penalty, that backs you up. Or a team makes a play on first or second down, getting a sack and a tackle for loss, that screws you up in terms of down and distance as well. So right now the Colts' offense is just really hard to sustain long drives while also scoring touchdowns at the same time. Um, you know, they did that in Tennessee to a degree. It worked. It didn't work in this game against Cincinnati last Sunday. I just want to see more pop and more you know, stretching of the field somehow, some way to help this offense get points, you know, quicker and more explosively than they have been. Matt, last one for me, and this might be a weird question, but does the history of the last 15 years with Pittsburgh have anything to do with this game in your mind? Because it's it's different, right? Because you don't see them every year. It's it's not to the extent of a divisional opponent. But, I mean, the numbers don't lie. I mean, Pittsburgh has dominated this series for the last long period of time. But it, does that play any role in this game in your mind? I don't think so. I really don't. I mean, because every year is different. I mean, the Steelers roster turns over 30% every year, just like the Colts does. So, um, you know, I don't think last year's game has any bearing on this year's game. In fact, I mean, I know the Steelers, they continue to dominate the Colts, but the last four games have been decided by seven points or less. So they've been close games no matter where they've been. You know, for me in this game, you know, kind of, I get what you're saying, and I know the Steelers and their fan base, they travel well, right? You know, a lot of the upper deck is going to be terrible towels just because they're going to snatch up those tickets. That's not an indictment on 
you know, Colts fans, that's that's the Steeler nation. That's give them credit. They're a very good fan base and they travel well. So they're going to be well represented no matter where they go. Um, but, you know, th- this Steelers team is not the Steelers of even four years ago with Ben Roethlisberger making, you know, playoff runs. I mean, right now they're seven and six and they're hanging on for dear life. I mean, this is a very winnable game for the Colts. There's no doubt about it. But that being said, Pittsburgh still plays that physical brand of football under Mike Tomlin. He's been there since 2007. So in that sense, they've got an identity. But Pittsburgh, they do they do four things well. They really do. On offense, they run the ball well, and they take care of it, right? They lead the NFL in fewest turnovers with only 11 on the season. Then on defense, their point total is pretty good despite the fact that they've given up a lot of yards. They're kind of middle of the road and, you know, rushing and passing and total yards allowed. But they've got a top seven point total allowed, which is under 20 points. And they're really good at taking the football away, and they're good in the red zone. Those are the hallmarks of their team right now. So you shouldn't be scared of it. You shouldn't be intimidated by the Steelers, even though they've won every matchup since 2008, right, eight straight games. But this is this is a different Steeler team. It's a very winnable game. It's at home. It's at your place. It's a chance to make a statement. It's a chance to win a game, not on prime time, but it's a standalone window, 430 on a Saturday. You're the only game in town. Everybody across the nation is going to be watching the game. So you have a chance to kind of make a statement. And there's a world of difference, like we said, in this game. There's a world of difference at the end of this game around 730, 8 o'clock on Saturday night between 7 and 7 and 8 and 6 because of the ramifications of uh, this one game and the head-to-head tiebreaker that the winner is going to have on the loser. Matt, I will call you on Sunday morning and remind you that it's Sunday, not Monday, and you don't have to go into work despite the fact that it's the day after a game and you've got a weird day off where you can go hang out at Costco. So I will do that for you, okay? Uh, I wish. Costco's awesome. I don't have a Costco membership. <laughs> well, <laughs> but maybe I can smuggle in or something, you know what I mean? I'll, I'll sneak you my card. I have it for the gas benefits. <laughs> Matt, appreciate it, man. All right, guys. Be good. Thank All right, you. Matt Taylor, the voice of the Colts. We come back. We will continue to take a look back at last night's Pacers-Bucks game, get a little more into that, and reflect on the greatness that is the Hall of Famer George McGinnis, who passes away uh, here. That news coming out this morning from the Indiana Pacers. We'll do it with Mark Monteith in just a couple of minutes here. Query Company, 93.5, The Fan. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. This is your first indicator, by the way, that Carl Showbiz is running things. This is his safety song, right, Carl? Exactly. You love you some Soundgarden, baby. Uh, last night in Milwaukee, Pacers and Bucks. I think we now know what happened was a Bucks official got the game ball, handed it to somebody else from the Bucks. Giannis saw an alternate game ball being handed to the Pacers, thought that his game ball was going back to the Indiana locker room. Giannis lost his mind. Giannis went after it, you know, Tippers flared in the hallway. Chad Buchanan got elbowed, and then all of a sudden it was left to everybody to sit back and pinpoint who exactly is to blame. 
We'll talk about a little of that and then most notably George McGinnis as well with Mark Monteith, longtime Indianapolis sports writer and a guy that knew George McGinnis very well. He joins us next. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. along with Brendan King. Carl Showbiz filling in for Eddie Garrison, who took the day off and is strangely walking the hallways. It's like the it's like Jacob Marley walking around here. Uh, joining us now on the program as we continue to not only talk about last night's, and we will, I promise, get more into the Pacers, Bucks, and some of the controversy from last night, but I also, listen, Folks, it, I'm not going to lie to you. I mean, it is always a challenge because you want to be well aware of and respectful of, you know, the topic at hand, which is the Colts and Steelers and the Pacers Bucks. But at the same time, I think there's a, a responsibility to illuminate for people and especially younger people the greatness that was lost today in George McGinnis, not only as a basketball player, but as a member and a pillar of the community. And Mark Monteith knew George well. MarkMonteith.com, where you can not only read Mark's articles, but also hear many of his past uh, interviews, the the fastest hour in radio, as it was known, in his one-on-one interviews. But Mark joins us now. Mark, I appreciate the time. Um, obviously, I know that you know you knew George well and, and talked to him on a regular basis. Uh, I'll begin simply with this. For somebody who is listening right now that is 25, 30 years old, and didn't see George McGinnis play as a player or totally grasp his greatness within the ABA and then the NBA, how would you summarize George McGinnis? First off, before we get to the person, George McGinnis, the player. Yeah, I think the thing you hear a lot, and I think it's accurate, is that he was LeBron before LeBron. You know, if you've seen LeBron James play, George was much like that. A six-foot-eight, muscular, really powerful athlete who also could run handle the ball, pass the ball, just had great agility. Just a really rare combination of strength and agility and different ways to score and really was just an unstoppable force when he was at his peak. You know, he high school, college, pros, all three levels, he was just an unstoppable player. And he was so physically gifted, Mark, in the fact that he was physically imposing but I remember, and I don't know if this was just a nickname my dad made up for him or if it was one that was just when he was in high school. My dad used to call him the Baby Bull. I don't know at he what point. He hated that nickname. He did hated he? that nickname. Yeah, because he didn't want to be compared to a, to an animal, you know. And I get I, that. People still use that. But, but yeah, yeah, understandable. But, uh, he actually got really mad at the Indianapolis Star beat writer about that one time. I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, it, what? when did that nickname come about for him? 
Oh, with the Pacers. It okay. was given to him with the Pacers. He was really commonly known as Big Mac. Well, yeah, Big yeah. Mac. Or Big George. I mean, both, right? Yeah. But so, so with that, though, I think that, that, that right there, the fact that that would be his nickname and he would be, and he would dislike that. And I get it. I mean, being compared to an animal, but you, when you think of a bull, you think of a hard charging, tenacious, unpredictable, you know, at times violently dangerous animal. And George McGinnis, am I correct in saying away from the floor was the absolute antithesis of, of all of that? Yeah, no question. Had this, the most gentle and generous demeanor of anybody you'd ever want to meet. And that was just his, it was a gift, really, because he was always that way, even in high school. Uh, I could tell you a story about how nice he was. I mean, when I was in college, uh, <laughs> writing for the Indiana Daily Student, I wanted to do a George McGinnis feature when he was in his first year in Philly and was on top of the basketball world. You know, he was first team All-NBA that first year in Philly. I went up to Chicago and chased him around you know, the hotel, the arena where they were playing that night against the Bulls, and went back to the hotel. And finally, when I got to him in the lounge back at the hotel, you know, he was surrounded by like 10 people, had his, not a posse, but just had a bunch of business people around him. And he gave me like 10 minutes there. Some kid reporter from the Indiana Daily Student, he was very gracious with me. And that's just who he was. And, you know, it's amazing the number of people I meet and they may not even be basketball fans who will have had an encounter somewhere with George McGinnis and will tell you all the exact same thing that he was just so nice, you know, and that's who he was. He couldn't help it. He was really, and I wrote this for the Indianapolis Business Journal. It's online right now. He was really too nice for his own good because he was very generous and people were always hitting him up for favors and loans and so forth. And he got taken advantage of quite a bit, but, uh, you know, he would be the first to tell you that he was very blessed. You know, sometimes, Mark, people get taken advantage of in that regard, and there's a naivety towards it. And then other times there are people that that, that happens to them, and they kind of accept it as one of the, the the responsibilities that come with with being blessed, if that makes sense. In other words— You're, you're exactly right. Th- yeah. Does that make sense? And, and I— Yeah. You, you and I probably both know who I'm— uh, another person I'm talking about, but like— but he struck me, and I didn't know George McGinnis well, disingenuous to say that I did like you, but he struck me as a guy that was aware sometimes that that might be taking place, but his nature was such that he couldn't do anything other than help. Yeah, you're exactly right. He um, told me once, and this is in my article, that he thought over the course of his life he had loaned out between seventy five dollars and $100,000 to former teammates and friends who came to him for a loan, and it never came back. And rather than being bitter about it, he said, I'm just glad I was in the position to be able to help him. And uh, that kind of sums up George McGinnis. And, you know, I was with him on an occasion where he was might have been with somebody who was a little bit down and out that he felt sorry for, and they didn't ask him for anything, and he'd pull a couple hundred dollars of cash, you know, out of his pocket and give it to him and insist they take it. You know, that's just who he was. And I had a lot of lunches with him. You know, I've entered, spent a lot of time with him over the last few years to gather information for a book I wanted to do someday. And and to get him to not pay for lunch was a battle, man. I mean, he, it was hard. He just he was always the guy who wanted to pay. He was always pulling out money to give to people. George asked me to help him with his induction speech into the Naismith Hall of Fame and the IU Athletic Hall of Fame in September. But 
when I went over to his house in 2017 to help him with his induction speech for Naismith, he, he pulls out $200 and gives it to me. He says, George, I don't want this. You know, I, I'm, this is no problem. You know, I don't need anything. He insisted I take it. I wound up giving the money to charity, you know, because I mean, but George was just always that way, just pulling out cash to give to people if he thought they needed it or if they had done the least amount of a favor for him. Just a generous guy by his nature. Hey, Mark, it's Brendan. We were talking about this with Darnell Hillman earlier, but you know, George McGinnis lived a dream of many kids wanting to shine for their hometown institutions, whether that's Indiana or the Pacers or you know, just a kid growing up playing basketball here. So for what he did, and I, again, I realize it's a different time, but how can he, his story inspire kids that have a love for their hometown and things around the state because he lived it? Yeah. Well, he really benefited by staying home. You know, he, uh, a lot of great players, they go off to college somewhere out of state. And uh, well, there's still big names in Indiana, but there are a lot of practical benefits to staying home. And George would be the first to tell you that, you know, being a Mr. Basketball at Washington and, and then going to Indiana, playing one year of varsity there, and then joining the Pacers and playing there from 71 to 75, you know, being a league MVP and everything, you know, that stuff comes back to you. And yeah, he went off to Philadelphia to the NBA because he tripled the salary and the Pacers, you know, weren't even bitter about it. They knew he had to go. And he wound up his career with the Pacers, but had been injured and really couldn't play anymore and gets cut by the Pacers in 82. And he went off to Denver for a few years to kind of decompress from basketball. But then he came back in the mid-80s. And because he had such a good reputation, had all kinds of opportunities. He was broadcasting games, high school, college, some Pacers, a lot of business opportunities, a lot of endorsements, commercials for people, uh, getting on boards of companies. And then in 1992, started a business, GM Supply, which is still ongoing, which is was successful because of George's reputation. Everybody liked George so much, they wanted to help him. And George would tell me that when he would speak to kids, he would say, your reputation is so important. You know, you develop a good reputation, and it'll all come back to you. And that was the case with George. It all came back to him. You know, he was rewarded so much for being just a good guy that people liked and wanted to help if they had an opportunity. And, uh, you know, so he set an example that way for kids, I think, and that, you know, just be the right kind of person, and it will come back to you one way or the other. Mark, one last thing, and I want to ask you about the controversy last night and kind of the growing rivalry between the Pacers and Bucks, which is fun. But um, one last thing about George McGinnis. You know, for you – I consider you, Mark Monteith, you know, the consummate pro, right? You, you, you've been a journalist for a long time. You've, I, I think you're a, a true historian in terms of the sports in this market. And I know that you have always carried with that the professionalism that is necessary with it. But this one has to be a little bit different because you, you lost somebody that, that I think you considered really a friend, right? And you knew him for a long time. Um, how has it been for you over the last couple of days? Because I know it's been difficult and the story itself has been difficult. And, you know, was it the first time that you thought, you know, you we've had others. I mean, Slick would be one, Mel Daniels, I assume. But in fact, when it comes to just the personal connection and the responsibility of educating about that personality, was this one different for you? 
Yeah, well, yeah, Slick and Mel were also difficult because I had spent a lot of time with them. But, yeah, maybe George more so. Uh, I think uh, George came as a surprise to me when I heard last week, you know, that he had had an episode, a cardiac episode at home and, you know, was in the hospital and it didn't look like there was any hope for a recovery. And uh, it came as kind of a shock because he had been in good health. Other than his back, you know, he seemed to be in good health. And I had uh, had lunch with him at the end of August and had gone down to IU for his Hall of Fame induction there at the end of September and seen him then. And so I had no, you know, this all came as a shock, I think, to everybody. And that made it difficult. And then, yeah, just, you know, the amount of time I had spent with George over the years and and gotten to know him much more than as as an athlete and saw examples of his generosity and, and some of the challenges he had and how he handled those. So, yeah, it, it is difficult personally. And I sometimes, Jake, I think, you know, as a guy who grew up in Indianapolis and was such a fan of Hoosier hysteria and, you know, wanted to be a basketball player, played high school basketball at least, um, you know, these guys were all part of my childhood. And, guys, sometimes I think that, man, we're losing these people and we're only going to lose more over the next decade or so. And it's sad, you know, and there's a lot of people I know who share – my feelings because we grew up watching that state tournament and watch guys like George McGinnis, you know, Billy Keller, others, you know, win state championships. And it was inspirational to us uh, to get out and, and play, you know, to go out in the driveway and put up shots and then to be able to meet these guys later in life as a journalist and, and see what good people they are. Uh, you know, it was just, it's a great part of your life and it's been a privilege for me to experience that, to get paid, you know, to write stories about people like George McGinnis has been a great benefit to me. So, yeah, it, it is very – it's difficult on a personal level, no question about it. Mark Monteith is our guest, markmonteith.com and the Indianapolis Business Journal, where you can read his work, hear his interviews as well. By the way, quick Colts note, Jonathan Taylor, Braden Smith, Shane Steichen says officially out for Saturday against the Steelers. He does expect Juju Brents to play and EJ Speed as well. That from Kevin Bowen just – in the last couple of minutes on X, Twitter, whatever you want to call it. Mark, when you were covering the Pacers, one of the fun things was the rivalries. And I know that people want to talk about last night, you know, the Bucks broadcast got upset with Tyrese Halliburton, you know, quote-unquote flopping after an elbow from Giannis. Then you had the whole situation with the basketball after the game. And I know it's easy to sit there from a fan perspective and get upset about it. I look at it and I go, this is awesome. Because coming off of the in-season tournament, the Pacers now all of a sudden seem to have this relevancy that franchises are aware of. And what better thing to have than a rivalry with a team within your own division and conference and one that has recently won a championship and makes basketball relevant again during the NFL season and heading into Christmas. To me, even though you don't necessarily want to see guys like elbowing and getting in, in scrums, don't get me wrong, but I think it's good. I think it's good for the Pacers. I think it's good for the fan base. What say you? I agree. I agree. The people get excited about this stuff. And, you know, the Pacers obviously have an up-and-coming team. They obviously are not at, not at the level of a Milwaukee or some of the other teams, you know, Boston and so forth. Even though they've beaten those teams, they are not at that level yet. But these kind of experiences, I think, help them get to that level. The Pacers need to be toughened up a little bit. You know, they need some hard knocks. And these kind of games, I think, instills that you know and and if we're talking about George McGinnis you know back in the George McGinnis ABA days this kind of thing happened all the time you know there were fights and all kinds of things like this and people life went on back then you know and people 
didn't get suspended, didn't get fined or whatever. Things happened, but it was all part of the rivalry. And it'd be forgotten for the most part, but you still remember the next time you play them, right? And I think the Pacers need these kind of experiences just to grow because you've got to be tough mentally and physically to ever contend for a championship. And those Pacer teams that contended for championships in the 90s went through these kind of experiences with various teams, not only New York, but uh, other teams as well where there were uh, controversies and so forth, a lot of anger, <laughs> and you need anger. You know, you, you need anger. You need the ability to get angry during a game to ever contend for something. You know, Reggie Miller had that ability. So I agree with you, Jake. You know, a game like last night doesn't hurt him at all and probably helps. And, Mark, it's a step to the ladder, right, because this is going to happen on your way to eventually playing a seven-game series against them more than likely if you're going to contend for an NBA championship. So this is what you expect in sports. Know that you know it builds during the regular season, and then you let it happen on the court in, an, in a playoff series, and what happens happens because there's no rules in the playoffs, it seems, with physicality. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you, this is the kind of thing you go through, and uh, you don't want it to be dirty. You don't want cheap shots, but there's going to be a lot of physicality. There's going to be guys getting mad. You know, there's going to be technical fouls and so forth. So uh, this is preparation for bigger things to come. Could this, and I'm not saying that they're going to make this decision in a vacuum, Mark, and I know that basketball's different than it was 15 years ago, let alone 25 or 30, but could the Pacers use an enforcer? Could the Pacers use a guy? Not, And I don't even mean like a Draymond Green nutcase. I mean, like, could they just use a guy like a Dale Davis to kind of set a tone and also to do a little bit of defensive dirty work for him? Yeah, I, I, their one need to me is a big guy who can help Miles Turner around the basket and be a rebounder and a defender and just a physical player. So you're right. I think a Dale Davis type would do him a lot of good. You know, watching that game last night, I saw Bobby Portis. Like, there's a guy who could help the Pacers. He got mad, you know, got kicked out of the game. Uh, but he could shoot it, but he's also a physical player around the basket. And I've been told that there was talk about getting Bobby Portis a few years ago, you know, before he re-signed with Milwaukee. He's a good player. Somebody like that, or it doesn't even have to be a scorer, though, you know, People talk about the Pacers needing another star. I'm not sure about that. Like for what? They don't need more scoring, right? They're the best scoring team in the league. And I think they got guys on the roster uh, like Matherin who can develop into a star. I think Isaiah Jackson has a, a real promising future. Jalen Smith, who's hurt now as well. They may have all the pieces they need really to become a contender if you just develop some of these young guys. But if you're going to trade for somebody or pick up somebody it needs to be a big guy who's going to help out with rebounding and would be a good defender mark i'm telling you the guy that i've had like an nba man crush on for like five years you ready this is yeah i i'm convinced this is this is the guy this is the guy i'm not saying this player but this kind of player although he's a little short maybe you ready yeah i've been preaching it for years jay crowder i love jay crowder yeah i've watched him too I've watched him too. Somebody like that who's just who doesn't care about scoring. That's right? exactly right. He does literally scoring. like first off, Jay Crowder comes out there and he's dressed like a stormtrooper, right? <laughs> he's yeah. got on like nine different like knee pads and elbow pads and body gear and armor, but it's because he just throws himself everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. And guys like that, not only what they contribute on the court, but they affect 
the mentality of all the players on the team. When you've got an enforcer like that, it toughens up everybody's mental outlook. They feed off of that. And if you have a bully with you in a fight, right, you're a little bit braver. So that's what you need. You need a guy who's capable of being a bit of a bully, not a dirty (laughs) player, not a bad guy, but somebody who's that type of player like a Dale Davis, Antonio Davis, whatever. Uh, that affects everybody's mental approach to the game and toughens up everybody. Mark, I remember when I was 24 years old, I'm out in Broderpool with my lifelong buddy, Matt Jacklin, who was like, you know, 5'8 and 160 pounds soaking wet, right? (laughs) Jacklin orders like a double jack, and I say, look, man, what are you doing? If you drink enough whiskey, you're going to find yourself getting in a fight, to which he says, no, I'm not. I'm going to get you in one. (laughs) <laughs> and I can't fight my way out of a wet paper bag, but the point's taken, right? Like you need yeah. the bigger guy, right? You need the bigger guy so that you feel confident. Absolutely. Didn't, didn't no get question. in a fight that night, but Hey Mark, I appreciate the time, man. I know that you were, uh, had a busy day today. I know obviously that this is a story that is more than just something that you write about when it comes to George McGinnis. So for you to pop on, I appreciate it very much. Hey, I appreciate the opportunity, Jake. I appreciate it. Mark Monteith again, markmonteith.com, Indianapolis business journal, where you can read, his work. Um, that Colts news also, Brendan, I want to get to that before we get to Michael Lewis here in just a couple minutes, but Juju Brent's expected to play. That's what we've been kind of waiting for, right? The Taylor and Smith news, not necessarily uh, huge surprises, but you know, maybe Brendan, it's, it's advantageous to bring Juju Brent's back in a game like this going against Trubisky, because it's not like you've got to be head on a swivel defensive back right now if you're going against Pittsburgh because it is a slower passing game as Matt Taylor was talking about. I'm with you and like you said it's almost like it's almost like a baseball player putting a donut on a bat, you know. You get stretched out, you get ready and then you're ready to step up to the plate. Bat feels a little bit lighter. Probably you're more adjusted to getting back on the field. I mean, it's been a minute yeah, since he's been sure. in a game, right? For I sure. mean, what, 7 weeks? And I think, you know, Brent is a guy that that does rely a little bit on his size and athleticism to be he, he to me and I'm not saying that he doesn't, you know, he's obviously so young. But I think Shaquille Leonard was a player that relied a lot on instinct when he was here. And Shaquille Leonard's athleticism allowed him to just kind of free flow at the position to move around and 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 his his speed, he didn't have to be in position all the time because his speed put him in position anytime he needed to be, right? And and I think Juju Brents kind of plays in that style in the fact that maybe technically or mechanically he hasn't learned exactly the corner position, but he is young enough right now that he has the instinctive speed and the range, the size, to be able to make up for that. So so you go in there and you're right. I mean, the, the the acclimation period of, you know, a guy like that, you put him in there, and if you're not totally mechanically sound and right away you're going against, say, the Bengals, you know, that's a bigger challenge, right? Mm-hmm. This allows you to, to kind of get your feet wet and get and let things slow down a little bit. Well, he's also playing in meaningful games now. I mean, you've said it multiple times this week. Not only did you not expect to see him in this role, but, I mean, expect to see him playing in games that have playoff implications, right? Correct. I mean, and, and you just – at the beginning of the year, when I was still doing the morning show with Kevin, and we were out there at training camp, you know, one of the talking points for us for the first weeks of that were, you know, about is Juju Brent's going to get on the field and because he was hurt. And so whoever would have guessed that in December he would be that critical piece, right, that you're like, man, that's that we really were looking at that. 
Uh, but the good news is looks like he is going to play. Eric's been waiting patiently. I think he wanted to talk about last night's Pacer game with the Milwaukee Bucks, so we will allow him to do so. Michael Lewis from Ball State going to join us in just a couple minutes. Uh, Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Go ahead and pot up Eric Carl. Eric, what's going on? Hey, Jake. Uh, I, I didn't want to comment so much about what happened uh, after game more than what uh, I, I've seen happen uh, over the last few weeks, um, which a Saturday night was awesome, and, and they went on a run there. But I went to the Bucks game about three and a half weeks ago with my son, and and that was the night when Jalen Smith was missing one of his first few games. And Miles about got in a lot of foul trouble, with be honest, then. But what we had back then, and and uh, Rick Carlisle and, uh, and our GM, they've done everything right at this point. But why we got rid of Daniel Thice was beyond me because what you have now is Daniel Thice was a veteran that, you know, wasn't getting very many minutes because Jalen Smith was in there. And now that Jalen Smith's out, you have no big man behind Miles. Yeah, I, I would agree. I, I Listen, Eric, and by the way, Eric, I think in, in my career doing radio, I think you might have been the first caller I ever took. I've, like, I, I feel like this this loyalty every time you call in because I'm like, man, Eric's like you've, you've stuck by me for like 12 years, which is very much appreciated, Eric. You're um, my favorite to listen to, by the way, my favorite. Well, I appreciate that. Yeah. I Listen, yeah. I have always thought, Eric, that I agree with you about Tyson. I remember when he came in saying – that I thought he could be exactly what we were just talking about with Monteith. Tice, to me, felt like a guy that could be an enforcer type. And I think That's it came exactly down right. it came down to economics, I think. You know what I mean? I think they just knew the way that they wanted to play and the pacing they wanted to play, I think they just didn't feel like that he fit in with that and that they could utilize that that the money or get it off the cap, a cap relief elsewhere. That would be my assumption or my guess. But I am... A hundred percent, Eric, in agreement with you. By the way, Eric, so you you said you took your son to the game. I did. I did, took him to the game. Okay. Yeah. It, now, do you ever go to games? Like, do you go specifically with your son, or do you go elsewhere? This was the second game I, I've ever taken him to. He's eight years old. Last year, I took him against the son. Do you want to go to the game Monday? Just, uh, just, but but I only have one extra. I don't have two. So uh, unfortunately, I hate to say you can't take your son. But do you want to go to the game Monday? Oh man. Uh, Goodness, uh, yeah, I'll go. Okay, the game. Eric, put Eric on hold and hey, get his. Hey, get. I got. Well, I got one trade for you. Can, can well, hold, I, hold can on, I Eric, because we got to jump okay. to get to Michael Lewis. But okay. I'm going to put you on hold. I appreciate it. We'll talk about the trade when you come to the game with me on Monday. Put him on hold. Get his number, and I'm taking Eric to the game. So Eric, we'll be. We'll go to the game. I I can't remember who they play Monday. I think it might be Detroit. But um, if you can, Carl, get Eric's phone number, or Eric, you can always text me. I think you have my number. Okay. You can always text me as well, and, and we'll get you there. Um, but we're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back. The voice. Uh, you know what? Let's just do it right now, Carl. Should we just go ahead? Let's take on Michael Lewis. Michael Lewis, chirp, chirp, the head basketball coach of the Ball State Cardinals. You're actually on the air. I just recognized the number here. So, Michael, um, I appreciate well, I want, you calling hey, I, in. I want, I want to go to the game on Monday. You want to go to the game on Monday? <laughs> if you want to drive down. Hey, screw Eric. I want to go to the game. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll get, here's the thing. We'll get Bushlight on draft. Go to the game. How's that sound? Do we have Michael? 
Do we lose Michael? Michael, there we go. All right, so Butch Light on draft in the game. You in? I'm in. Let's do it. Hey, uh, how, you, no. how you been, man? I'm good. How about yourself, man? I'll tell you what, you're you're doing well because things are going well up in Muncie, right? Well, we we uh, we've got a very inexperienced team that is growing up um, and getting better each day. They've been fun to work with. Um, we we got we got a long way to go, and and uh, we got two big games here before Christmas, and then then hop into our conference season. But um, you know we've we've dealt with some different things. We've had some injuries, but we've had different guys step up along the way, and um, you know we've competed fairly well um, for the most part. I think one of the things, Michael Lewis, that had to be a challenge, and I wanted you to kind of address it, was. You know, we oftentimes look at teams in November and we expect that team to be exactly what we're going to see in March, right? And there's a process that goes with it. That, to me, seemingly would really have been the case for you this year because probably more so than other years with Ball State basketball, like you really had to kind of learn your roster throughout this first 10-game process, right? Yeah, and I think we're going to continue to learn it. You know, like when, you, when you've got the, the amount of inexperience that we have um, – you know, guys are going to grow and develop and catch on to different things at different times. And, um, you know, so, you know, and I think any team, like you, you don't want to look uh, in March, what you look like in November. Right. I mean, that's, that's not the sign of a good basketball team, you know, but that's part of being a beauty. The beauty of being a fan is you get, you get to expect those guys to be able to play at a national championship level in November. It's not quite that way. And uh, our guys are going through it. We got young guys that are, um, you know, in college for the first time, they're taking finals for the first time. They've been away from home for the first time. And, um, you know, you just, you know, I, I said yesterday in an interview, like you can't shortcut success. It kind of, it, it, it takes what it takes and there's, there's no way around it. Our guys are in the middle of, of learning that and, and they're growing up and it's been a, it's been a fun group uh, to work with. Um, there's just a lot of up and down because of the, the inexperience, but our guys have um, obviously with our record more times than not figured out how to compete. You know, one thing you're not doing a lot, as a team, is fouling. And, and I look at that and, and I say that, that seems like, I, I guess, maybe a, a, a discipline aspect of it. Is that is that right? I mean, in other words, like, do you feel like your guys are, do you have a disciplined team, if that makes sense? Yeah, no, I, I know what you're trying to ask. I, You know, I think one of the most physical teams I've ever been a part of were, were some of those Butler teams. Um, that I was an assistant coach on, and, and we fouled you on every possession, uh, but we we didn't get called for many fouls. And, <laughs> and I think um, you know I, I think there's a way to defend. I think there's a way to impose your physicality into a game um, where you're you're a physical defensive team, yet um, you don't you don't make the undisciplined fouls. Like you know when 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 we go to get a you know a steal. Um, we try to teach go with two hands, you know, because just your, your human eyes, when you, when you reach in there and you're slapping down with one big swinging arm, like it's human nature to, to call that a foul, right? When you're, when you're in position and you're, and you're reaching in there with two hands, you try to get two hands on it. It just doesn't quite look the same as with that big left arm swinging down, slapping, slapping on a loose ball. Um, you know, when you, when you're in the paint, you know, we want to be very physical, obviously with some of the new rules, um, that are in place. Like we, we don't, uh, we've kind of gone away of teaching the art of taking a charge um, because of the new rules um, that are in place, and, and we try to we try to beat you to a spot, and then you know use the use the verticality, and um, you know so we try to teach some of those things from a defensive standpoint to, to kind of keep us uh, out of foul trouble, and uh, we try to utilize getting to the foul line offensively, and then we try to 
uh, try to be strong and disciplined, kind of what you're alluding to a little bit on the defensive end, where we're not, um, you know, just giving up, you know, silly points and easy baskets. Now, I'd like to know this. How do you foul as a team and not get called for it? There's got to be a secret magic to that, right? Is there like an uh, art we, of the foul? Is no, that what it can't. is? We can't give it all up here. <laughs> it's not me and you just sitting there having a beer. Like, this is real now, you know? So, no, I, yeah. I think, I mean, I think everybody just, you know, they, they know. Like, you, you got to be able to, you got to be great uh, in your, your position defense. You got to be quick, your rotations. Um, you know, you've got to know, you know, when to go after it, when not. You just got to be smart um, and, di- and disciplined in, in how you how you defend. And um, we're not exactly where I want to be yet, but we're getting better. Hey, Coach Lou, it's Brendan. Good to hear your voice. Yeah. First of all, glad you brought up uh, the Butler days because, of course, you were there when I was a student. But about coming up this weekend in the Indy Classic, I know you've had a lot of fun moments inside Gamebridge Fieldhouse or then Baker's Life Fieldhouse, Barlow beating the Hoosiers on that last second shot. But coming up this weekend, it's Indiana State. I actually just had them for TV play-by-play. I had the game against Southern Indiana when they put up uh, you know, 98. Uh, so what stands out about the Sycamores to you? Well, I mean, they're uh... – they're unbelievably um, very efficient, um, good offensive team. You know, I, I think you know they they uh, well, I, I, they're what the number one effective field goal percentage uh, yep. team in the country. Um, they what what really stands out to me is is how easily they move the basketball. They pass the basketball. They share the basketball. They're averaging over 18 assists a game, I believe. Um, very willing passers. They understand who they are, what they're about, what they're looking for. Um, it's, it's fun to watch. Um, you know, if, if I were to sit down and, and watch a college basketball game, like, and they're on, I'm going to watch them just because I think, um, you know, you can learn from them. Um, just how, how they play offense. Their spacing is outstanding. Now, obviously, when you put five guys on the floor that can all shoot f- over 40% from three, it helps your spacing, right? You, I mean, you can't space the floor if you don't have quality shooters. They have that, and then, you know, I think they, they trust each other. They've, they've played with each other, and they they understand um, – you know, ball movement. They, 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 and people movement. Uh, they're just very efficient in what they do. It's not a bunch of fluff. Uh, they get right to what they're trying to attack. They put you in tough spots to defend. They play fast in transition. Um, they're just a very, very disciplined uh, offensive team. Um, that you couple that with a, with a very high skill level, um, and they're really difficult to defend. Meet all of them. Michael Lewis is our guest right now. Ball State standing eight and two, winners of three straight. Indiana State is Brendan just mentioned coming up on Saturday. That game one forty five. Coach, I'm curious. You know, throughout maybe it's through this three game streak, your two losses to Little Rock and Evansville. Was there a specific game so far in the first ten where, from the sidelines, you realized or had the epiphany that you were watching what you needed to know to learn the most about your team? Was there a specific moment where you said? Now I have a better idea of what and where my team is. Well, I, I don't know if that's particularly happened yet. Um, you know, we, we've we've had some injuries. That's um, kind of we've we've so we've plugged some people in. Some guys have have taken some huge strides. Um, but but I I do think um, a little bit like what you're alluding to um, when we played Bellarmine here at home. Um, we we played really well, um, and and I felt like it was um, as good a job as we had done up until that point of uh, following a defensive game plan and and really putting in some things that that we wanted to accomplish um, and taking away what Bellarmine liked to do. I thought we followed it up fairly well, especially the second half 
uh, in our last game uh, last Sunday against SIUE. And so, you know, we're, we're, we're getting better. Um, I wouldn't say we're where I would like us to be. I'm not sure anybody would, but uh, we are getting better. And I think this team has, has made some outstanding strides in becoming um, who they would like to be. Um, and that's, that's being a team that go out and compete each night. You know, your roots run deep. I, I think a lot of people, Michael Lewis, head coach at Ball State, you know, they say, okay, well, you know, he, he was an assistant at Butler and he played at IU. Perhaps people may not realize the, the roots in which your family runs with the IHSAA and just young people and the development of young people in general. Um, what does it mean to you to be able to provide the opportunity to learn and play the game of basketball at a school in the state of Indiana and with a roster made up of kids predominantly from Indiana and just kind of carrying on the legacy of your family's footprint towards athletics for young people in this state? Yeah, well, I, I think, you know, if I, if I look back and, all right, how did I, how do I, how do I get here? How do I become the head coach at, at Ball State? And, and you look back on um, the different things that I've been through in my, in my journey and the number of people that have helped me. Um, you know, now I'm just simply in a position to, to do that in return. And I think, um, you know, I think you and I have talked about it before. Like, I, I believe athletics and, and a competitive environment is the greatest teaching tool um, for young people that there is because you have to deal with all the things that, that come up through competitiveness. Like you, you deal with losing, you deal with adversity. Um, you know, you, you, you understand, you learn very quickly what it takes to be successful. Like our five freshmen right now are learning that what they did in high school is no longer good enough, that they've got to go about things differently. And how do they overcome those things? And you've got to have the, the mental discipline and the mental toughness to, to be able to accomplish things that are really difficult. Um, and then you've got to be able to do it again and again and again uh, to achieve the, the success that you want. And we get to use a game to teach life lessons. Like, you know, we, we lost on the road. And I'm, I'm looking out over a group. I got a bunch of mopey faces. Now, I don't want a team that's happy when they lose, but, you know, we moped around for two days. And it was like, listen, fellas, like losing a basketball game is not going to be the toughest thing you ever go through in life. Like you're going to you're going to lose loved ones. You're going to lose people that are close to you. You're going to probably get fired from from a, a job and you have to go home to your family and explain what happened. Uh, over half of you are probably going to experience divorce uh, at some point in your life statistically. Like you just lost a basketball game. Like if you can't pick yourself up and show up and practice the next day and compete the next day, like how are you going to handle life? And that's really what's, what's most important and what um, we try to teach in our program. We just try to use basketball um, as a way to, to uh, get these guys prepared for what's next. Michael, finally, just because as I mentioned, you know, your, your family roots with high school basketball in Indiana and with the IHSAA, you played at Indiana, I know, obviously, many years after George McGinnis. But when you talk about losing people, we lost George McGinnis today. Did you have any uh, encounter or interaction with him over the course of your career? And just your thoughts on the passing of, of an absolute legend in Indiana high school well, basketball. I mean, you, you, you said it. We, we lost an absolute basketball legend. And, um, you know, I, I was just uh, – I just saw George uh, back this fall um, – at, at burn down in downtown Indianapolis. Um, you know, Woody, Woody had an event, um, that George was at and, and I got to spend, spend some time with him. Um, and that wasn't the first time I met him. And, you know, the thing about, and you know, you've, you spent time around George, like, like he, like that's George. I mean, that's George 
Evan McGinnis, right? And like he makes you feel like you're the big deal. Totally. Like you, you know, you're you're sitting there talking, and he's you know he's telling me about um, you know our our team here at Ball State and how things are going and how he follows us and you know how how's how's your team looking this year? And like, dude, that you're George McGinnis, like, and you're you know, and that's just you know that's just who he was. That's the presence that he had, and um, you know, I just uh, feel very fortunate to you know, had the, the few moments that I, I got to spend with George, um, and just how he made you feel. And it's, that's a, that's a special quality. Not everybody's got that. And, and he had it. And, um, you know, obviously I think everybody knows his health has declined here, uh, as of late, but an absolute, uh, basketball legend. And you, and you got to think about when he was who he was, like not only what he meant, um, you know, to Indiana, to the Pacers, to basketball in Indiana. But at the time that he was doing what he was doing, um, our society was in a much different place. And the the hope and the, the the way he handled himself, I think, opened up a lot of things for other people like him, especially young kids growing up in Indianapolis. Michael, I appreciate the time. Appreciate the thoughts on George McGinnis as well. We wish you the best of luck on Saturday against Indiana State. When Eric and I are at the Pacer game on Monday. Perhaps we'll be talking about the Cards moving now on a four-game win streak, or we might be talking about the tough Indiana State team as well. But I, I would, and then I'll say, you know what, Eric? Thursday night we got to watch because Ball State's going to be at Minnesota coming up. So you got to turn around on a quick one. But we wish you the best of luck on it and, and a Merry Christmas as well. All right, thank you, Jake. You too. All right, Michael Lewis, the head basketball coach of the Ball State Cardinals. Way over. We will take a quick break. Come back. Talk more about. What happened last night? Pacers, Bucks, and the Colts as well. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com. And talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. You're listening to Query and Company on 93.5 and 107.5 The Fan. Thank you to Michael Lewis. By the way, when he referred to Woody, he he meant, obviously, I think most know, but Mike Woodson. Mike Woodson would have had Burn as a cigar joint, and Mike Woodson's a big cigar guy, so I would assume that they got together for uh, an Indiana basketball cigar party at Burn. Mike Woodson, the head coach. But again, Indiana and, or excuse me, Indiana State and Ball State coming up. Huge sports calendar weekend, Brennan, because you got the Colts, you got Purdue and Arizona. You've got Indiana and Kansas and then Indiana State and Ball State. It's awesome. I mean, I guess the only thing you would change, right, is to put that Purdue game at a different time than the Colts. The, That'd be the only part of the wish list. That's, and that's the part that's a challenge, right? I mean, I remember last year when the Colts got flexed to a Saturday game against Minnesota and we did our family Yuletide. We go to Yuletide every year as a family. My dad gets tickets for, for all of us. And so, you know, I missed that Minnesota – furious comeback over the Colts because we walked into Yuletide. I'm like, oh, it was 20 to nothing or whatever. It was 26 yeah. nothing. And then, you know. Life comes at you fast. We went to the Yuletide show last night, by the way. It was fabulous. Absolutely fabulous. Our road trip to Pittsburgh going to be taking place just about 40 minutes from now. 
You're listening to Query and Company on 93.5 and 107.5 The Fan. Now, Carl, I got a text earlier when I had mentioned that you typically play Soundgarden and you play Spoonman. And I, I kind of jokingly mentioned that you are a Soundgarden fan. Now, you're not necessarily a fan, right? You just kind of like the genre. Is that right? Uh, maybe as much as I like the doors, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Can I name a title off the top of my head? Probably just Spoonman, well, and that's it. You know it. Doors songs, though, right? <laughs> yeah, of course I know Doors songs. What's your favorite Doors song you told me? <laughs> it's got to be L.A. Woman because I'm from L.A. There you go. There you go, my man. L.A. Woman is pretty good. It, you know, I had to. it wasn't until I got the iPhone that I was able to read the lyrics at the very beginning. And he says, "I did get out of. I did get into town about an hour ago." Yeah, he kind of mumbles through that, right? So I think when I was a kid, I was just <laughs> yeah. like, "Hey, did a little bit of hey, hey, hey," you know. I, I yeah, didn't know you what know, I'll say this in defense of Indiana, uh, L.A. women in general—that's a lot of hype. There's a lot of beautiful women <laughs> here in the Midwest. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, you had to come all the way to Indiana to yeah, get yourself to a woman, right? To mid, yeah, to Indiana to meet my wife. Oh so that's, yeah, that's just like a white winged dove. Same thing. Exactly. I'm telling you, the, the iPhone with the lyrics on it is a complete, like, total rattle to one's confidence <laughs> of their intellect. You're like, wait, what did I think that was all that time? <laughs> I get completely confused by stuff. Um, all right, Brendan, what would you think last night? The Giannis after the game. Now that we know a little bit more about it, do you are you still peeved by it? Are you offended by it? Was he out of line? Do you say, well, I kind of get it? Your thoughts. I was never offended by it, but I thought that was, you know what? I will say this. That was the first time I ever heard or saw a prima donna type moment from Giannis. I don't think he's ever really thrown. I would agree with that. Those tantrums. Here's the thing. Late in the game, Giannis is having his way with the Pacers, right? He's averaging 52 a game against them so far like this year. I mean, he's he's been unbelievable. I don't think that he probably knew that he was on his way to the highest record, the highest point total ever against a Pacer, a Pacer team, which previously was 60 for Klay Thompson. But I think when the lead got down to 10, there's minutes to go in the game. It was probably out of hand at that point, but they substitute Giannis back in. I have always had a great enjoyment of Giannis. Same. And I will admit that as I was watching him, I thought, okay, you know, like when they won the title and he was driving around with the trophy and going to Chick-fil-A and putting out videos and people were meeting him in Milwaukee and he was buying Chick-fil-A for everybody and letting them take pictures of the trophy. I mean, it was like, this is a guy that is absolutely saturated with just innocent joy. And it was really refreshing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, late in the game, th- the last two baskets that he had were probably excessive. You know, the, the certainly the dunk and the stop and the pounding of the chest, I, you know, it was an, an exultation that I have not necessarily seen from him in, in a game like that that was clearly out of hand. I understand why that then would fuel for people the 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 anger that they want to take out somehow. And then when they see him going after the ball, I'm talking about Pacer fans, th- then now it's one plus one is e- equaling two where you're like, okay, yes, I so he was being a jerk. Look at this. 
Then I thought Rick Carlisle, you know, Rick Carlisle said after the game, look, we had a guy in Oscar Sheboy that scored his first ever NBA points, and we wanted to give him that ball. And there are alternate balls that are given. You know, they're, they're, they're not just playing with one basketball in the game. And so we thought, you know, we didn't realize that Giannis wanted the basketball. And so, yes, we did take one of the balls and present it to Oscar Sheboy. And Giannis somehow or another saw that ball leaving the floor and thought it was the ball that he had just dunked minutes earlier. He gets upset. He goes chasing. Then players are like, what's going on? I, I, in other words, what I'm getting at is I'm not trying to excuse any of it, but I think it was one huge colossal misunderstanding but to me the other way to take it is this is a growing rivalry and that's good it's great right it's mm -hmm. good pacers need a rival we haven't had one you know, who, who was the pacers last right the heat maybe the the you know the knicks clearly right but i remember kind of prior to the knicks i remember there was a a, a slight hiccup like in the chuck person era when Reggie Miller was first coming up, the Bucks were kind of a rival because the Pistons owned the NBA Central back when the divisions were still a thing. And the Bucks were kind of the team that the Pacers had to get, kind of nudge out of the way to try to get to the table close to the Pistons and the emerging Bulls at that time as well because Jordan was a young player. But there was a brief period, like the Sydney Moncrief, actually, yeah, it would have been right before Jordan really broke through. But the Sydney Moncrief, I think Eddie Johnson was there, Scott Skiles was there when they played in the Mecca. They were a rival, but it was kind of because a rival out of like necessity of trying to find somebody to rival with because they were stuck in the same on the same plane of trying to break out of mediocrity. Now for the Bucks to be a world championship contending team and taking the Pacers as some sort of a rival and getting butt hurt about little things about it is actually kind of a compliment. And it's like, you know what? Hallelujah, have a parade. Pacers have arrived. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Query and Company on 93.5 and 107.5 The Fan. Hey, Brittany King, I'm going to put you on the spot here. Our Thursday Ready. road trip coming up, just about 30 minutes, we're going to go to Pittsburgh. So lay out for me, or for the folks that are just listening, if they're just joining us, where have they been? Uh, tell me from the Colts practicing standpoint in Shane Steichen's confessions um, in terms of who he expects to see playing against the Pittsburgh Steelers on Saturday. Give me the list of who's in and who's out. Out, confirmed, right tackle Braden Smith, running back Jonathan Taylor, in, cornerback Juju Brents, but still have to get a detail on DeForest Buckner, mispracticed today with a back injury. He was limited in practice yesterday, and we'll see what happens on Saturday. Okay, so the big one there, Buckner is big, right? Yep. Juju Brents couldn't be big, could be big, I'm could. saying, you know, the fact that he's back. Because you, what you want to do at this point is you're trying to get yourself in position to get to obviously be at full strength down the home stretch, and he's a big part of that. Jake, as average as the Steelers have been this year, if there's one thing about them, they've got receivers. Pickens is good. 
Johnson is good. Their tight end, Fryermuth, is solid. So they got guys downfield that can catch the ball. It's just a matter of if Mitch Trubisky can deliver it. The um the 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 Buckner injury. Brendan, I don't know that we've given enough credit to, to DeForest Buckner, to be honest with you. I think I mentioned that I was listening to the Bengals radio broadcast in the Colts Bengals game on Sunday, and you know, they listed right away with DeForest Buckner, he had made a play, and they're like, look, this is one of the four best defensive tackles in the league. And I, I don't know. I, I think we know how good this guy is, but he is especially – and I, I realize that, that different players, different things they do, but he's the one guy that's that's kind of been just like the most – like we almost take for granted how good he is. Does that make sense? It's like when you choose to pay more than you normally would for an item out of necessity. Yeah. Well, and, that's, and it ends up doing the job. Yeah, and that's happened. You, you know, there have been players where teams have said, "Like, look, we know we are probably overpaying the guy, but you know, we had we had to do it, right, to to keep him around or to try to build for another piece, that kind of thing." Um, so, but he has been as good as advertised from the time you know when they made the trade with him, and and like Matt said, he stayed healthy. The only game he's missed was because he had COVID, right? It's never been an actual injury thing, and he's played through injury he's had games where he was a limited practice participant all week ended up playing he was on a pitch count that might have been last year but still I mean he's always been serviceable so did you watch last night's game between the Pacers and Bucks I did there was one play where Halliburton scores he is turning around to go the other way and basically bumps into Giannis who clearly gave him an elbow now did Halliburton flop a little bit off that? Maybe. But Marcus Johnson, who does the television color commentating for the Bucks broadcast, kind of took exception to it. And then later in the game was talking about the elbows from Giannis and referred to Halliburton as – how did he word it exactly? Like a, Didn't like he a, say wannabe superstar? Wannabe superstar. He, he took the Wally route. And here's the thing. I mean – Halliburton's a Wisconsin guy for crying out loud, right? Hey, I'll tell you what, that didn't work out too well for Wally when he tried to do that. <laughs> That's <laughs> right. right. Remember that? You're right. But, you know, to me, again, this kind of shows that everybody has that little brother that kind of nags at him, right? Yeah. And for the most part, you kind of don't pay attention to it, but then eventually you're like, you know what, like, this isn't going to go away. And you address it. And I don't mean that you get violent with your little brother. You, you get what I'm saying. The For the Milwaukee Bucks to get as irritated as they did, clearly losing to the Pacers in Vegas struck a chord with them, right? I oh, mean, yeah. Clearly, they were impacted by what had happened. And are they a little bit, and this isn't me trying to be like Homerish radio, start something where it doesn't exist, but, you know, are they a little bit intimidated is maybe the wrong word, but hyper aware of the rise of Indiana? Hyper aware, cognizant. You know? and did you did you watch Giannis's press conference after the Vegas game? Yes. 
where they asked him multiple times about Halbert. And again, last night, as we talked about in the last segment, last night was the first thing I've ever noticed from Giannis that was like, okay, that was that was baby like, that was prima donna like. Never had that inkling from him before. He's one of the most seemingly caring superstars in sports. Right. They asked him multiple times about Halliburton, and he gave great sound bites. I even cut up the sound bites for here to play because I thought they were that good. I put them on my midday updates that I do for Network Indiana. But you could tell in his voice, part of Giannis was PO'd that he had to talk so well about Halliburton. And how could he not be? I mean, he lost in Vegas at the in-season tournament. But he said one thing, Jake, that really stood with me, and it may have led to his outburst last night, outburst as in the amount of points he scored. He said multiple times in that Vegas press conference that they played harder than us. I don't have anything else to say. And that drove at him. You could tell. It really, really made him mad to have to say that. And, again, like you said, hyper-aware that the Pacers are on their way for sure. And you know, Giannis put together a superstar performance last night. Marcus Johnson, by the way, who does the color commentating for the Bucks television broadcast, you know his claim to fame in the world of basketball? What would that be? And I will admit, I mean, this is an enviable claim to fame. I would, If I was Marcus Johnson, I would have this on my business card. I would have it in my social media profiles. I would have it everywhere possibly that anybody could see it. When Michael Jordan was at the University of North Carolina and he was a rising star, Sports Illustrated did a feature on him where they showed a picture of him in his dorm room at North Carolina as a junior All-American basketball player, and he had Marcus Johnson's poster on his wall. Mm. If I'm Marcus Johnson, I am letting the entire world know I'm the guy that Michael Jordan had as a poster on his wall. Is there any greater compliment than that? (laughs) Not many. But Marcus Johnson now, did you get what I just sent you, Carl? Marcus Johnson now is doing color commentating for the Bucks on television. This was kind of an odd commentary last night after the moment where Halliburton uh, had fallen to the floor after what is, I thought, a pretty clear elbow from Giannis. And then later in the game when things were getting chippy, here's Marcus Johnson. Physical at both ends of the floor. And if, you know, uh, if, a, if a wayward elbow catches somebody in the nose, if a, if a forearm shiver catches a, a you know, Two cockies want to be superstar in the chest. So be it. <laughs> I mean, I'm not naming any I names. I was going to say to be named nameless. No, no, I'm just saying. Just it I'm, 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 I'm speaking in generalities. Speaking in generalities, Brendan, right? Want to be superstar. I, I don't know how that continues to be a trend. It's a cheap shot now. He, he has proven to be the superstar that's on the rise. I don't get that anymore. You're talking about Halliburton. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. I mean, this is a guy that if you look at his – look, he's not a wannabe superstar. Now, is he – here's the thing. I don't think he's a wannabe superstar. I don't know that he's a superstar just yet. Exactly. He's on the rise. But I've never heard him say, this is what I'm going to do to be – like, Victor Oladipo was a wannabe superstar. Correct. Paul George was a wannabe superstar. When Paul George went out on Jimmy Kimmel, dressed like Rockwell from the Somebody's Watching Me video, (laughs) and and talked about how he just hired a personal stylist, he was a wannabe. And Paul George probably did become a superstar, partially accentuated by the fact that he went to Los Angeles. But that's a wannabe superstar when you're talking about those things. When you're going out and 
Tyrese Halliburton has never done or said anything to this point, mind you, because we shall see, because he's got a huge contract. You never know how that's going to change a guy. I don't mean that as an indictment on him or anybody else. Track record's not great here. Right. And he's already you know talked about like, hey, I'm tired of losing. I want to get players. And there was a lot of talk during the in-season tournament from a national standpoint that, look, this is a guy that players might want to go play with. He might be the one that bucks the trend of getting players to come to Indiana. That would be the sign of a superstar. And but I but a wannabe superstar would mean that he is going out and going out of his way to exhibit behaviors that are non-parallel with their actual level of production. I don't think he's doing that. You know the Oladipo thing that comes to mind with that? Remember when they played the Heat and after the game chatting it up. I forgot who the players were, but oh, three, he supposedly was saying like three or four Heat players came over and he was like covering his mouth like this. Yeah. Of wanting to go play there. Right. Well, and also for Oladipo, it was over when the Pacers after the year of his injury, they still managed to get into the and he was a great player here. Don't get me wrong. He was a great player. And I know that he did a lot of things that people enjoyed. But when he had the injury, talking about Victor Oladipo, and then they managed to get into the playoffs, and he was on the bench, or excuse me, he was not on the bench for the playoffs against Boston, and they finally, because he was in Miami rehabbing, and they said, you need to be on the bench, and he missed his flight, so he came and he was only here for one game. That was the beginning of the end right there. Right. And then after that, you know, the, the exactly that, the talk of, you know, you got to get me out of here. I mean, come on. Uh, Jeff joins us on the program at 239-1070. Hey, Jeff, how are you? Do we have Jeff? Can you hear me? Yeah, I hear you, Jeff. What's up? How you doing? Good. Hey, am I the only one that – and the NFL's gotten really bad. And I'm one of those 80s growing up in high school, and I'm sure there were plenty of calls missed. But is the NFL getting to be worse every year play, play referees and calls? Give me an example. I'm not disagreeing with you, but give me an example. Well – Holding for one. There are so many holding calls that you can watch live or during the replay, and guys have just extended and grabbed people, and there's no calls. It just seems to be it's, – it's almost unwatchable. Now, you find that, or am I exaggerating? No, I, I think there's probably – here's the thing, Jeff. I'll be honest with you. Like, from the from the holding standpoint, I, I think there's probably some truth to it. I do think that the game itself has become so much more physical because you have elite athletes at every – like, I think there's probably some truth to the fact that holding is more frequent now than it was. And hear me out here, Jeff, because let me ask you this, Jeff. How old a guy are you? 58. Okay, so we're in the same age range, right? So, yep. So in our childhood, for example – you know, defensive tackles were like William Perry and, you know, even even like the Lyle Alzados or Mark Gastineau. Like, these weren't like elite-level first step. I mean, they were strong guys, right? They were they, – they, it was it was used with straight-line brute as opposed to fleet of foot. Like, Freeney probably changed a lot because of the spin move. So, I, I, I think that – you are now seeing more guys that are playing at the defensive line position and, and within the trenches of the NFL, defensively speaking, that have a lot more certainly lateral quickness than they once did, and that probably has necessitated 
for an increase in the way in which you and I were taught, like, you know, you put your two hands on your jersey and you keep your arms out wide and then you block that way so that you don't. I, I just think, like, there is a different level of the style of play along the defensive line that would necessitate and create for different ways in which you block, which probably right. does. So, therefore, it probably leads to a greater amount of necessary leniency in what you consider to be egregious and what you consider to be passable. Does that make sense? Yeah. It does. Here's another, here's another one. So I don't know if this would have mattered in the Colts Bengals game, but they they took away a penalty, and they called it, it they called it pass interference. They took away the penalty. We probably would have had the ball on the one yard line or who knows where. And they said because the ball was tipped. Well, I got news for them. The contact was made while the ball was in the referee's or in the quarterback's hand. So there was no pass interference. It was an illegal chuck or right, illegal, illegal contact. contact downfield. Yeah. yeah. And it shouldn't have taken away the penalty. There was one, and then it was the game, I think, Monday night in one of the games. Somebody gets stood up and fumbles, and the referee blows it dead. And, and the, the guy's not even close to being on the ground. I just – I'm finding it – the NBA, I think, has been this way for a while. Again, this is my old, crusty 58-year-old mind – but the NFL is getting bad. And at some point in time, they've got – I used to always say this. Now, you'll, you'll remember who I am when I say this, but I refereed for 15, 20 years. And I used to always say if you had – if a refereeing was a So sport, which sport did you referee? Did you do both? D- Division One college basketball. So you didn't do football? No. I, and okay. I always thought football would be hard to referee, but everybody that I refereed that did both said it was easier. So, but my point is, if you, if you said refereeing was a sport, it's the only sport they think you get better – the older you get, because you got guys out there that are in their sixties and late fifties, and they can't officiate. But I think but, Jeff, but there's, here's no, the there's thing. no accountability. I, the, the, I think the one thing that the NFL probably has the biggest challenge with, and, and I don't disagree with you. I mean, I appreciate your perspective, but I do think that the NFL is starting to run into. And, and hear me out on this, okay? So if you're 58, Jeff, do you have kids? Do you have? I'm sorry, I. I Sorry, yes, Carl. I I yes. Okay, and I how do. old are your kids? Uh, 18 and 15. Bingo. So perfect example. I'm going to guess that your kids, when it comes to watching sports, that you find that their attention level at watching sports starts to wane at an earlier period than it did for you. And they probably... <laughs> yes, it does. What's that? Yes, it does. Okay. You're right. So my point being... Soccer, for example, I have always said part of the reason why soccer in this country has become so popular for younger people is because you know going into it, it's two hours. I, I know going into it, it is a two-hour event, and I'm in and out. The NFL is smart enough. The NFL is a marketing monster, 800-pound gorilla. They, nobody markets themselves better than the NFL. And they maybe they're not the 800-pound gorilla. Maybe now it's just 799 pounds. But it is still the giant, but there is a somewhat of a tick of a fatigue that can take place with the NFL. And I think for a lot of people, it is the complaint of the games taking too long. And in particular with young people, that's one of the things that is a challenge for them because they are so used to the fast-moving pace of soccer, for example, or a lot of like you know online stuff where it's boom, 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 and it's instant gratification, and it's faster moving, and there's not the dead periods. So my guess is that the NFL probably 
I don't know if it's by if they have mandated to officials, but they probably even subconsciously have in their mind the fact that calling an excessive amount of or calling every infraction that actually is there is slowing things down and they are being encouraged to keep the game moving at a pace because the only area of vulnerability for the National Football the NFL has survived performance-enhancing scandals. The NFL has survived domestic violence scandals. The NFL has survived owners in massage parlor scandals. The one thing that the NFL would have trouble contending with is the fast-moving pace of other sports. And so I would feel like subconsciously they probably are aware of not finding themselves in a situation where they're going too long with every single ticky-tack thing, and they have to pick and choose, if you will, when to do it. You know, last night in the NBA, Brennan, with Giannis, I mean, that game took forever, and and I think it was Tony East that figured out that Giannis is taking 14 seconds, now it's supposed to be 10, 12 to 14 seconds every time he shoots a free throw, and he's shooting 32 of them a game. And it's like, holy cow, the guy's at the free throw line like longer than an episode of Seinfeld, right? So that they're wanting to get away from that, quite frankly. Yeah, I mean, what was it? We were well over three hours last night, right? I mean, yes. it, felt like, it felt like the longest Well, game. and then consider it feels longer because, as I told you, when I was in Milwaukee on Saturday, the sun, it gets dark there at 2.45 in the afternoon. Correct. So by 8 o'clock, it already feels like 2 in the morning. Oh, yeah. Have you ever, I mean, when you would go home, do you ever feel like 9 p.m. at your parents' house feels like 1 in the morning? 9 p.m. at my parents' house feels like 1 in the morning because it's 88 degrees. <laughs> Yes. But, I walk into my parents' house, and I'm like, what are we doing here? Yeah. Like, Lucifer's fanning himself in the corner. My mom's like, I find it perfectly comfortable. It, I, I the, would, it, literally, the thermostat's at 80. I'm like, your thermostat's at 88. Your humidity's at 70%. Then my dad gets, I know you're going to talk about this on the radio, aren't you? You're going to make fun of us on the radio. No, 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 Dad, I'm not going what's to. That, what's that heating bill like? <laughs> I, who knows? I'm telling you. No, I would. so I would go home to do a broadcast in Chicago. I get Heating bill? It, Carl, that's in the summertime, for crying out loud. <laughs> Get home at nine thirty. Pitch black inside. I was like good night. You yeah. Know, so no, for sure. I but and, and last night that game. So the game started at eight local, right? Seven. I thought it was seven thirty or no. Maybe it was seven thirty. Yeah. But you know, obviously they're an hour behind in, in Milwaukee. Right. But it was a long game. Oh yeah. It felt and and like a big forever. part of that was the free throws. I mean, Giannis was taken forever. That like literally. And, and I counted when when they were here when Milwaukee was here at the field house. I actually, because the crowd is... is the is, crowd chants. Correct. So I actually got my phone out at one point and, and like in a stopwatch fashion, started it. And I will say, he got the shot off almost every time, like right at 10. Yeah. You you feel like, you know, you the crowd is chanting it to like 12, but it, it was... In its form, it was 10 seconds. He's got to have some sort of a clock in his head, I would guess. The best with that was when Phoenix did it. Phoenix fans, they were the best at chanting for the how long it oh, took. Oh, during you. the finals? Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. that was amazing. I, I mean, it is, it, it is pretty remarkable, right? I'd tell you what. I mean, kind of in the same sense, just experiencing it every day and kind of being in it before it happened too, the pitch clock has done wonders. For the game oh, of baseball. Well, okay, and I should have brought that one up. That's a perfect example, Brad. Yeah. Why did Major League Baseball go to the pitch count? Because people were disinterested in the sport. It was taking way too long. Correct. Four-hour games. Like, everything is about – I'm telling you, like, I've never been a soccer fan, okay? 
and I've always joked, soccer's been the sport of the future since 1978, right? I've Pele, well, now it's lacrosse, right? Pele, yeah, that's right. Pele signs with the New York Cosmos, and this is it. This is going to put it over the top. And then, you know, there have always been the different things where people are like, this is what is going to set it over the top. But with with the game of soccer, for so many people, I do think that the pacing of it and knowing you you know hey do you want to do you want to come over and or do you want to go to Union Jack and watch Man U well sure what time they 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 take to the pitch at two o'clock great I know that I'll be done at four whereas if I said to you do you want to go watch Monday Night Football the game starts at seven what time are you going to be home Brendan I I don't know it depends on how the game goes it might be nine thirty might be eleven I you know it, it becomes a challenge uh, let's go to uh, is it Cliff is that right. Cliff, what's up? Cliff, you on the air? There we go. Yeah. What's up? Um, this is something that I haven't heard talked about much, but I know that you fellows, you know, talk about the fan experience and, and how important it is. One of the things that really bothers me, and I, I'm a big sports fan and I, I really like your show, uh, is is the number of commercials. I mean, yeah, they might be a marketing giant, the NFL, but they're also a commercial giant, and it just seems that they're cutting more and more of the game out and have commercial after commercial. And I tell you, if you're going to shorten the game, at least on television, well, if you go if, if you go to the game in person, you have to wait around for the commercials to be over. That's true. The tele- like you, How many times have you been to a game, Cliff, and I have, where you're sitting there and the players are standing around and then you realize they're like, oh, they're still waiting for the national audience to come back, right? But, yeah, it's way too often. But, but Cliff, here's the here's – the, the bottom line, and I, the bottom line is the bottom line, right? And that is yeah. when you talk about Fox, ESPN, CBS, all of them, you're talking about billion, with a B, billion-dollar television contracts. And so if you are paying billion-dollar television rights, you know, the obvious way that you recoup – there's a reason why they pay that billion dollars, and that's because they generate it back in, in advertising. So if you know – that keeping people waiting for an extra 45 seconds or 60 seconds during a commercial timeout allows you to get in an extra $10 million spot. The bottom line is, though, with the heavy ticket stuff, that's how you pay the bills. You know what I mean? Speaking of which, we don't have any heavy tickets around here, but we do have bills to pay. So we're going to do that, and then we're going to take our road trip, courtesy of AAA, next. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. The Query and Company Road Trip on 93.5 and 107.5 The Fan is brought to you by AAA. Purchase a one-year AAA Classic membership and save 50%. Have AAA's legendary roadside service and much more 24-7-365. Visit AAA.com slash gift. We will fire up the car for the road trip here in just a minute. We are efforting to use a radio term to get in touch with Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Have you been to Pittsburgh, Brennan? I've only driven through. 
I've never spent a night in Pittsburgh. But I will say, PNC Park, high on the wish list for ballparks to visit. Yeah, it's a great, great looking park. I've right? heard don't, amazing don't things. baseball stadiums, by the way, baseball stadiums have to be facing a certain direction, correct? That's right. Which direction is it? Do you know? I don't. Off the top of my head, but I will do some research for you. I think it's it is it that is that just some old blue law for baseball, or does it have to do with the sun? Or I think it's an no, it's an actual thing. Because PNC Park faces beautifully, like towards the rivers there. This is a rule, Jake. Rule one point zero four in the MLB rulebook. Thanks, Google, by the way. States that a playing field. It is desirable that the line from home through the pitcher's mound to second base shall run east-northeast. So say that again. It has to run which way? So if you draw a line from okay. home to second base over the mound, okay. it has to face east-northeast. I mean, that, that, would, that jives with victory field, right? Yeah, absolutely. People would be surprised by this. But one of the years, and I apologize that I can't remember which year it was specifically, but when I was working at Channel 6, the Colts had a Monday night game in Pittsburgh. We went there. I'll never forget because at the hotel on my bed was a gift basket of Heinz stuff. Heinz based around Sure. It was like nine different sauces from Heinz that I didn't even know. You know, I just think of them as the ketchup folk, right? And... We go to the game, and I can't remember. I, I think Pittsburgh won. Was it part of this long win streak from 08 onward? It, was, it would have been prior to 08, I believe. But nonetheless, we were leaving, and we're in – back then you had satellite trucks, and we're in the satellite truck in the parking lot, and we're editing tape and fe- furiously getting ready for the 11 o'clock newscast live shots or whatever, Sunday Sports Extra, whatever it might be. And, and you're in Pittsburgh. You're in Heinz Field. You've got all these people, the terrible towels and everything else. And people are, like, banging on the sat truck. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. Like, we're going to be in the middle of, like, a fan, you know, riot here, right? Finally, we opened the door, and it was people that were passing by, and they're like, hey, we just want to make sure, like, make sure you tell you guys have a safe trip home. You know how to get out of here. You know which way to get to the interstate. They could not have been nicer. Literally. Now, granted, the Steelers had won, so maybe that's why. But I'm telling you, like, the people of Pittsburgh could not have been better. They were mm-hmm. awesome. Absolutely awesome. Um, but this time, and there's going to be a lot of them probably here on Sunday making the road trip. And so we will do our Thursday road trip now. Joining us on the program, he is the pregame host for the Pittsburgh Steelers on the radio network. Tim Benz joins us over in PA. Tim, how are you? Do they at least put you on the right the expressway out of town that gave you good directions. <laughs> That's the thing. That the next dicey here in Pittsburgh. <laughs> the next thing I knew, I was in Harrisonburg. Yeah. No, people were nice, man. People were friendly. I don't know if they had too many Iron Cities or what it was, but they were in a good mood. If you were in Harrisburg, they did a really lousy job. Harrisonburg, I'm not exactly sure where that is, but that might be like a little... Oh, Harrisonburg's in Virginia. Sorry, Harrisburg. You're right. Harrisburg, your fine state capital. My apologies. Yes, yeah. Harris, Harrisburg, if they sent you out that way, uh, you went a little too far east. But, uh, yeah, it can get a little hairy getting out of uh, 
what is now the Acrisure Stadium parking lots for sure. I think my my experience with Colt fans, like my my most memorable experience when I was on the road um, with Colt fans was in the 05 playoffs when Dennis fumbled at the goal line. We were coming down the elevator, and you had like the way I remember it, like there's a little little slice where you get out of the elevator, you kind of are, are among the fans, then you get back correct to where you go in the RCA dome. That's correct. Yep. Yeah, right, exactly. And there were Colt fans trying to run back into the stadium, and we just kept hearing Parker fumbled, Parker fumbled, Parker fumbled. Why is Parker in the game? Why wouldn't they be giving it to Bettis? And sure enough, we got there in time to see, you know, Vanderjack missed the kick and everything. But, like, most of us right before, like, literally a couple minutes before Cower came in, we still weren't 100% sure if it was Parker that fumbled or Bettis for this, like, massive story because all these Colts fans were convinced it was Parker who had fumbled at the goal line. So, Tim, that same game, I must have been right behind you in the elevator because back then, you know, and that was a a veteran move by you because there were only, like, two elevators from the RCA Dome going down, and and you had to wait. If you got too late, you had to wait for the coaches, right? So you had to go in advance. Right. And and I went right as Vanderjat was lining up for the field goal is when I got on the elevator – and literally, the doors open in the exact spot you're talking about, and I would literally, it was right as the ball was sailing, landing, like actually near Harrisonburg. Harrisburg is where the ball landed, and <laughs> and literally, it was like walking into a morgue. I mean, people were. I don't know if people. That was the most deflating loss in the history of this city, professionally speaking, because it was a fait accompli that the Colts were going to go to the Super Bowl, and Pittsburgh comes in and makes that run. Um, but it added fun to this, I'm not going to say rivalry, but the history of these two franchises, which has been very one-sided. So question is, this particular matchup on Saturday, is it advantage Pittsburgh or advantage Indianapolis? Because these are two teams that are stuck in the same lane for the wild card. That's well said, and that's how I'm looking at it too. Uh, the only reason why I'm picking the Steelers is that there's no reason to pick the Steelers. Yeah. <laughs> It's just that kind of year in the NFL, and it's that kind of year for them. Like, for as bad as they have been this year, there was absolutely no reason for them to lose to either Arizona or New England, and they lost to both. Um, You know, and this is one of these typical Mike Tomlin games where he has put himself into a corner, his team has put him into a corner, and uh, they have lost games that they shouldn't lose, and we're all mad at him and calling him out and calling out the team. And then he turns around and wins a game and on national TV on a standalone game. And everybody in the national media says, see you people in Pittsburgh panic for no reason. And the cycle of life continues. Um, so like that's, that's kind of why I'm leaning towards the Steelers. This is largely a game that they tend to win under circumstances like this. But then again, you know, what's, what's holding me back is for as uh, inept as the Steelers offense had been under pick, it looks even worse under Trubisky. So um this could be ugly. It could be low scoring. And uh, it might just be a matter of which quarterback throws the ball to the wrong team at the wrong time that, that makes the final outcome. You kind of answered my question there a little bit. And that is, you know, I was going to ask you how different, if at all, Pittsburgh offense is in going from Pickett to Trubisky. Because I think we know who Trubisky is. I think we're still trying to find out who Kenny Pickett is. Um, but do they have to simplify things down at all with Trubisky? Or is it just that they do the same things, they just do them with one fewer cylinder? Right. I, 
I don't think they have to simplify it at all. In fact, I don't think it is. Um, you know, Kenny Pickett's a pretty smart kid. Um, he's got limitations, but intelligence isn't one of them. And frankly, I think I think Mitch is a smarter guy than how he plays, if that makes any sense. I mean, I think Mitch is a bright guy. I just think sometimes he doesn't process so well when it comes to seeing where, what might happen if he pushes the ball down the field. I think Pickett is a bit more risk-averse, and they kind of like that about him right now, that he's willing to check the ball down and always make the safe play. Uh, Trubisky is not. Trubisky will put the ball in harm's way more often. Uh, he had one pick last week, had one drop, and had a third that was uh, taken away via penalty. So he does get a little bit more risky, um, but it's not a matter of simplification of the offense. You know, they do kind of have similar skill sets. I think Mitch is a little bigger, stronger, and um, runs a little bit more willingly and faster. But Pickett has a lot of those characteristics, too, and they move the pocket for both of them. So, you know, it's, it, you're not getting a vastly different quarterback or a vastly different approach. This isn't going from, you know, stand-in-the-pocket guy to run around, um, you know, Lamar Jackson kind of guy. This is they're, – they're similar in most regards. Our conversation with Tim Benz over in Pittsburgh being brought to you by our friends at AAA Hoosier Motor Club. Um, Tim, in terms of Indianapolis, and, and, you know, Gardner Minshew can be a rhythm-type guy, but yet if there is pressure put on him, ball control has become at times a real bugaboo for the Colts, and especially – if they've got to go to the air because they can't get their running game uncorked, which happened to them in Cincinnati. What sort of things are they going to be looking at defensively with Pittsburgh in terms of if you are Shane Steichen, you are saying to yourself, Pittsburgh's defense is vulnerable here. Where is it? Over the middle because they're so bereft of numbers, talents, players, uh, an inside linebacker. You know, they had – they've been chasing – replacing Ryan Shazier ever since his spine injury in Cincinnati in 2015. And this is the best job they had done. They got Cole Holcomb, Quan Alexander, and Landon Roberts in free agency. And those guys, the three of them, had a nice little rotation going there for a while, and then they all got hurt. Now Roberts is playing, and Roberts has done a better job with more snaps than I anticipated he will he would. Um, but he's, he is very much – a run-stuffing, blitzing kind of guy. He's not a coverage guy. So tight ends have hurt them the last couple of weeks. Um, that's been a real problem for them. So I don't know if the Colts are going to try to use, you know, whether it's Cox or whoever they got tight end-wise, whatever combination, or if they just try to use Pittman over the field middle in the middle of a bunch. But I, I think that's the way to go. You know, and if you're worried about where they might get attacked, clearly it's on the edge. With Watt and Highsmith, if Highsmith plays, Watt was out of protocol today. But for the most part, offenses have done a pretty good job in recent weeks of limiting damage there. Those two were going crazy in the first five to seven weeks of the season and really being the reason why the Steelers were at or above 500. Forcing turnovers, getting turnovers themselves, scoring with the football themselves or putting the offense in position on short fields. They had been fantastic, but... You know, with all the chipping and tight ends and running backs being thrown at Watt, Highsmith isn't dynamic enough to do it all alone the same way that TJ can. And I think for the most part, offenses have minimized the damage that those guys can do on the outside. And the Steelers just aren't as creative as they used to be. They just don't have the horses, maybe, to blitz from the secondary, blitz from the interior, 
and make up for the attention that's being paid to the edges to minimize Highsmith and Watt. Hey, Tim, it's Brendan. Deontay Johnson popping up on the injury report. I know he missed time earlier in the year. Uh, If he does have to miss Saturday, has George Pickens played well enough to potentially step up in his role in recent weeks? No, he hasn't, um, despite what he would probably tell you, which is he's open all the time. You know, he's one of those guys who's a bigger receiver who thinks because he's got a heightened size edge, that means he's open. But the quarterbacks and the coordinators don't necessarily see it that way. Uh, especially young guys like Pickett and guys like Trubisky who constantly feel like he's playing for his right to be on the field. They're not going to throw the ball up there and just say, you're bigger, go get it. Um, He's not a great route runner. Johnson is a very good route runner, but I don't think the two of them have done a very good job of getting open. Fryermuth had a really big day at the tight end position to help them out against Cincinnati the week after they fired Matt Canada, but it's kind of been a ghost the last two weeks. Um, their playmakers have been a problem. You know, they, the quarterbacks have not been good, but I don't think they've been helped out very much either. I've got an almost impossible question for you about Pittsburgh to ask you in just a second. Tim, Tim Ben's our guest from Pittsburgh. But before that, I want to clear the, uh, clarify this real quick for everybody because you, you made mention to it there. Uh, T.J. Watt is expected to go, right? Out of concussion protocol and barring any symptoms, they do believe he will be available Saturday, correct? Correct. That's uh, everything that I heard today. I was not over at the facility today, but uh, from everything I read in the video I saw, I mean, he spoke to the media. They don't let those guys speak to the media unless their plans are to play. And he said he's out of the protocol now, and it, it does look like he's going to play. Okay, here's my almost impossible question for you, Tim Benz. Are you ready? Sure. If the, if, the, if the question is about will the Pirates ever win the World Series again in my lifetime, that's an easy answer. No. <laughs> like, we'll with the Steelers. I, I don't hey, know where you might be going Their AAA prospects come through here, Tim. Come on now. Okay. <laughs> I want you to tell me, and, and there's no more tired thing in the history of sports than the whole, who's your Mount Rushmore? But, so I'm not going to go with Mount Rushmore. That'd be four. We're going to go with five, Okay. Tell me the five most beloved professional athletes in Pittsburgh sports history. Lemieux and Clemente are easiest. Okay. And then it's just a matter of, if you're saying beloved, beloved, Palomalu. Okay. And then it's kind of like, do do you want to put the second penguin up there with Crosby? Uh, I I would personally and it's just a matter of how do you want to pick your Steelers of the 70s like you know if it's me um you said sports figures right not necessarily athletes. well athletes athletes guys that played for a team in guys Pittsburgh that played okay all right well if if it's the overall tone of the city if you're saying beloved most adored then in all honesty it's probably Crosby Lemieux Clemente Palomalu and Franco, or, I, I was, mean Joe. I was going to say Joe. Franco Harris, but I, I would assume the Penn State thing helps Franco Harris in that regard, right? A little bit, yeah. I, mean, I, I don't think I don't think he needs it because <laughs> Bradshaw's um, Bradshaw's relationship was complicated with the city for years, was it not? Yeah, exactly. See, that's why that's why I, I hung my hat on the clarification of how universally loved they are. You you can't find anybody in Pittsburgh that doesn't love Troy Polamalu. It's just, do you love him as much as? mean joe if you're a little bit older you know like or you know maybe maybe there's a huge big ben fan out there but like there's nobody who has anything bad to say ever 
about Troy and yeah, things got strained with Bradshaw. Franco got here and never left, you know, and lived here his whole life and was front. He was sort of the, um, he was the front door to the Steelers of the seventies all the way through last year when he died. You know, he was the representative him, him and Mel Blunt have been here ever since they retired. So and because yeah, there's a little bit of the Penn State thing and the immaculate reception and all that, um, Franco, Franco, and Mean Joe are probably neck and neck when it comes to those two, those two guys representing the Steelers of the '70s from the players themselves. For as as memorable as Bradshaw was, I think it's those two guys in terms of popularity. And then there's sort of the mystique of Jack Lambert too, because nobody's seen Jack Lambert since he retired. Really? <laughs> yeah, I mean, like he came back, he came back once. For, I think it was the Super Bowl fourteen, the 1979, uh, whenever they got, came together again, maybe in 2009, or maybe it was 19. I don't remember. He only came back for one of those. He never does anything publicly. He still lives around here. Like, he's not too terribly far. I think it was about an hour, hour and a half away or something like that. But he never comes back for anything. He's just got this mystique about him. And, um, you know, the older fans, you know, might put Lambert into that same stratosphere that I just did. The younger fans, I feel like, don't connect with him as much because he wasn't out there as much as Franco was. How about Mazeroski? Yeah, uh, Mazeroski for sure. For our dads, uh, I, I right? Maz, but it's, it's, a, it's a one. It's, we're getting from, from the 1970s to, 19, to 1960. It's a little bit more of an age gap, and it was one moment. Um, you know, again, older fans in Pittsburgh adore him. He still lives around here. He's the nicest human being on the face of the earth. Um, I love Maz, and... I would have no problem if anybody put him on that Mount Rushmore for that one memorable moment. And he was, hey, he was a great fielding second baseman, too. I got to go with some Willie Stargell only because I impersonated that weird batting rotation that he had, like the entire 79 series, even though I was a Reds fan. But uh, great, yeah, great. I was, more of a, I was more of a Parker guy. Yeah, I mean, like, man, Parker the Cobra. Number one. Yeah. yeah no, the... and, 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 then, uh, and then Willie after that for me, for sure. I mean, the Cobra was the man, too. Anytime you want to throw from right field with no hop, all-star game, I'm all about it. Tim, appreciate the time. Uh, certainly, if you're coming to Indianapolis, enjoy your stay here. Get some shrimp cocktail sauce and spend a lot of money, all right? All right, great catching up with you. We'll talk again soon, I hope. I appreciate it. Again, Tim Benz over in Pittsburgh, part of our road trip. And by the way, road trip brought to you by AAA. AAA.com or 1-A-A-A-GO. AAA is how you can find out your membership for. I was just the other day uh, out shopping around and I ran into dude was super nice, guy named Dave. He was helping out a woman whose car had died and getting the jump start. He had the AAA and he said, hey, man, by the way, are you aware of the fact that we can now do tires? I said, I am because I had the AAA crew, my pit crew, come right out to my house and put brand new tires on my car, part of the benefits of a membership for AAA, and we appreciate AAA making it possible for us to take a road trip each and every Thursday. So appreciate Tim coming with us from Pittsburgh. Uh, we'll come back, put a tie on it, and hand it off to John here coming up in just a couple minutes. It's Quarian Company on a Thursday, 93.5, 107.5 The Fan. On 93.5 and 107.5, The Fan. Every time I hear this song, I think about, you ever been to Denver, Brendan? 
I was I a freshman in college, myself and, uh, gosh, four buddies from the University of Kansas decided to go to Denver for the weekend. Bo Vickers was one of the guys I was buddies with. Lived in Denver, and he's like, let's go to Denver for the weekend. So we piled into his Ford Escort, like, you know, hatchback. But it was myself and four others, so there were five of us. So we were three across in the back of this car. It was brutal. And we're on I-70, and we pulled into a gas station, whatever else, and ran into two guys from Kansas State that were going to – they were going west. They were going skiing. And we were like, look, we are so cramped. Can we get? Can we put two of our guys in your car, and and then we'll like pull off when we get closer to Denver, and you know, and release the hostages? And I like, yeah, sure. So myself and another guy got in the car with these two dudes from K State and drove the preceding like eight and a half hours with them. Um, and right as we and I'd never been to Denver, and right as we came like kind of cresting over where you could finally see the foothills of the Rockies, that song came on the radio. Oh, that's and cool. The, the two guys from Kansas State were like, dude, nobody rocks ACDC like K-State, man. <laughs> and I'm like, all right, turn it up. <laughs> so I was like all in on K-State and ACDC, baby. Who says a Jayhawk and Wildcat can't get on the That's exactly huh? right. You throw in some ACDC and some Rocky Mountain High, not literally in that regard. but uh, That was had, for later. But th- you know what? That, that, that was just the beauty of those years in college, man, just doing stuff like that, right? Like you can you do that today. People will be like, "What are you talking about? Like get in our car? Like you're, you're crazy, oh, right?" I mean, we uh, we packed in at least seven people to drive down to Fort Lauderdale for spring break. Best. I mean, hey, take take rotations, sleep oh, yeah. in, and yeah, rotation. We had a rule. I, I did a road counterclockwise. Trip once, totally. I had a road trip with two buddies. We we drove all the way to Seattle and back when we were in our early twenties. And the rule was the person in the back got to sleep. But if you rode shotgun, you had to stay awake exactly. to, to help to assist the driver, Same right? Thing. Person in the back, though, could only be wake. We could only wake up the person sleeping if you needed uh, soft drinks out of the cooler or peanut butter and jelly sandwich because you had to make the sandwiches. Shotgun guy got to run. They were the DJ. They got to pick what music was playing. You, know? you and I have the same system. That's right. And, well, and believe me, if you pick the DJ and it's a guy from K-State, plenty of ACDC because nobody <laughs> rocks ACDC like K-State. Um Listen, I want to go back to what we kind of led the show with today, and I know John's going to join us uh, or you know take over here in a little bit. But, um, you know, I, I was in the sixth grade the first time that I met George McGinnis, and I only met him because George McGinnis came to speak to our middle school and, you know, just about being a professional athlete. And his career was over by then. It was about three years after his career had come to a close. And so I knew of the legend of George McGinnis. I knew of the the, the larger-than-life player of George McGinnis. But I didn't know about George McGinnis. My dad had told me about the legendary games where they defeated Marion in the, in the semi-state. Well, it was the Final Four, so the semifinals – the morning game at Butler Fieldhouse in 1969 where he had 27, and then they came back and beat Gary Tolliston for the championship to go 31-0 and in 69 with Steve Downing. And my dad always talked about McGinnis and Downing, McGinnis and Downing. And I knew that he had been a great player for the Pacers, but by the time I had seen him play, it was in the twilight of his career when his body really started breaking down on him. And then – you know, I was fortunate, obviously, from a professional standpoint to cross paths with him and interview him a few times. And what Michael Lewis said was right. He made you feel like he knew you forever. 
And we had very dear family friends that moved to the Geist area and lived next door to George McGinnis. And he was a wonderful neighbor for them. You know, he, as, as Jay, Jay Butler, would be out in the yard doing projects, George McGinnis would come out and, you know, help mulch leaves or work on, you know, putting in new trees or whatever it might be. Just a, literally a gentle giant. And I think that just over the course of time, partially because of the evolution and the maturation of the Pacers franchise from an NBA standpoint, we things evolved to the point where it is possible that people would have forgotten just what a great player he was. But an ABA MVP, an ABA Finals MVP, an ABA champion, the leading scorer for a single season in Indiana University basketball history, a Mr. Basketball, an NBA first-team All-NBA performer that went to the NBA Finals for the Philadelphia 76ers, and more so than that, a successful businessman in Indianapolis that never hesitated to speak to kids, to give his time and generosity to people that came up to him, and to show the gentle nature as to why it was a total blessing when his father decided to move him here with the family at the age of five. Godspeed to George McGinnis, who passed away earlier today. John's up next.